Seville. Alvin, Simon, Theodore, and I would like you to join us in singing the songs of Christmas. So let's all gather around the tree and have some fun. Ready? Here we go. So, Mark, uh, why is there no Hanukkah album from the Chipmunks? Here's the thing, Wade. The reason why the Jews are so persecuted is because yes. we make horrible music. <laughs> That's the reason. I mean, how many, how many, how many, like you know, Jewish rock stars are there really? Uh, there's Bob Dylan. He's Jewish. Yeah, sure. You know, but basically after that, there's you oh, know, oh, here comes Alvin Solo. Hold on. I, I still enjoy this album, but I, I, I can't get with those movies. Those horrible, horrible animated movies. They're just dreadful. Uh, wait. I, like your, I like your phone, the little stand on it. Is that going to be one of our stocking stuffers that we discussed today? No, because no? I bought this myself, and you can buy it too at, the, at your local Verizon store. Oh, really? Yes, you can. Oh, that's very nice. Actually, what I was doing while you were... Uh, uh, by the way, this is our holiday show. I know it's a hard to leave. But uh, <laughs> I, was, I was answering an email because Wade was doing queuing up the Chipmunk song. I was answering an email. One of our LAFCA members had just seen Truth with Kate Blanchett and um, uh, Robert Redford as Dan Rather. And uh, I'm responding to that email because our buddy Tim Cogshell, who has hosted the show in the past, yes. he did not like Truth. And uh, I, I enjoyed the performance. Mm-hmm. I, actually, I enjoyed Kate Blanchett, but I, I, I did not necessarily. I think the film was kind of uh, uh, flawed. Yes. Let's say. Okay. But anyway, that's what I was doing while you were queuing up the gym. Very good. This is a great show so far. This might be our best fantastic. show. fantastic. Might be our Look, best show yet. So here we go. So uh, this is, of course, our, uh, our holiday show, uh, which is wedged between uh, Diwali and uh, uh, Kwanzaa, which means that we, uh, we're essentially going to be talking about Hanukkah and uh, Christmas gift uh, box sets and suggestions and gift guide uh, goodies with a few other interesting little, uh, little surprises interspersed throughout the show. And um, since we really, I mean, you know, there just aren't a lot of Hanukkah movies and whatnot. So we got a few things Hanukkah related, but that, very few. So otherwise, take the uh, take all the Christmas gift suggestions and make them Hanukkah suggestions because a gift is a gift. But Hanukkah specific stuff, very little, unfortunately. Uh, always keep hoping that's going to change each year. Um, so with that, lots and lots of uh, good stuff overall where we're going to be talking about today. I want to say out of the gate, Mark... Uh, Sign of the times, probably, but the the five boxed sets this season that I was most eager for us to review, none of them are being made available. Not one. What? Of the five, the five most the most coveted ones. So By I'm the way, I'm saying these are first world problems. I'm these just are saying that we're here's here's free stuff we're not getting away. Yes, let's put it out there that this is not. And no and, uh, and and just in case you know, there's a timeliness issue here. We uh, you know uh, last week was uh, since our our rather morose uh, opening to the show after the Paris bombings. Uh, there of course was uh, uh, the whole incident in Mali, and uh, ISIS apparently is filled with lots of holiday cheer. And anonymous, who's hacking the the daylights out of ISIS, apparently has recently just said that they are planning. Uh, on literally tomorrow, we're taping, we're we're recording this on a Saturday, and they are literally going to tomorrow supposed to be uh, uh, lighting the world on fire with attacks like in five different countries: U.S., Italy, who, Malaysia. Wait, who, who's doing this? ISIS. They've got uh, ele- what this anonymous. I'm just saying, in case things take a real southward turn between the time that we're recording this and the time that the show goes live. We we want you to be filled with good cheer and just don't let those suckers get you down. Just carry on, world. Just keep on trucking. 
That's what I'm saying. It's a I'm holiday show. Very, it's a very inspiring way. Isn't it good? <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a sign of the time. So anyway, uh, um, of a more first world nature, the five box sets we will not be discussing today that we're not talking about that I wanted us to get hold of, but which are not being promoted even for various reasons. Uh, Warner Brothers not promoting the uh, Mad Max anthology. There were a limited number of them made. They're all sold out. So if you got one, you got one. You're fortunate. But they're not. it's not a Christmas promotion item for them. So Warner Brothers, very good to us otherwise because we have giveaways. Mark, we got giveaways. What? Yeah, baby. We better. It's the we Christmas got, we show. We got fantastic giveaways. By the way, notice how I just instinctively said it's the Christmas show? Yes. I didn't say it's the holiday show. I know. I, who cares? It's Christmas. Who gives Christmas. a crap? Just come on. People stop it. It's uh, Starbucks, whatever. You okay. know, it's a secular thing, too, for a lot of people. And um, so, uh, so not nothing on that. Universal sees no reason to promote their uh, complete Jurassic Park, Jurassic World uh, box set. They just it's not it's not there. Not interested. So I guess it's just selling like hotcakes, and they don't care. And then uh, Disney is not sending us the three other box sets that I was hoping to get. Uh, the Star Wars box set, for obvious reasons. I guess they figure, why even bother promoting it? People are just going to buy it, and, and they're going to come out with a new one next year anyway with the, the, with the new film. The only thing anyone cares about is the Star Wars that were the original George Lucas edits with the crappy special effects. And no CGI. And Han's shooting first. Han that's all first. anybody cares. That's, that's all, all we're waiting for. That's all I'm waiting for. I don't want to... I don't even want to see the film again until I see that version of it. I That's agree. all I want. I agree. And uh, so Disney not making that available. Disney not making the uh, the big the the new big mega uh, Marvel box set. That's not available either. And uh, also not making the Miyazaki box set available, which is sad. So the Miyazaki set is supposed to be quite wonderful. But we anyway, those five box sets not available. And uh, those are kind of the five biggies of the season. So if uh, if those are the ones you want to hear us talk about, good night, goodbye. That's it. That's all we got. Nonetheless, we have really, really good, cool stuff. We've got giveaways. We've got uh, interviews. We've got uh, really great stuff. So a lot of fun things to come in this fantastic show. And uh, I'm going to make mention just really quickly, the, the, the Chipmunks song that we use to lead things off, of course, is from uh, Chipmunks Christmas, which is still out there from Capitol Records and uh, being promoted all over again. And they sent us uh, a bunch of other Christmas albums that I'm going to mention because I don't think uh, there's any point in playing any of these on the show. But I just thought this was funny. Mark, these are the three Christmas albums that we were also sent. You like this? Let me see. <laughs> Neil Diamond. But yeah, they're cool. Well, not about Rod Stewart. We have Neil Diamond, who's cool. Come on, Neil Diamond's cool. James Taylor, he is, I mean, he's a little soft, but he, he's cool. He was a good songwriter. Rod Stewart. Yeah. These are not classic Christmas albums. No, I'm just saying. But I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Not, oh, oh, you know what? Of all those, I would probably take. Uh, of all those, Rod Stewart, Merry Christmas Baby, James Taylor, At Christmas, and Neil Diamond, the classic Christmas album, I would it's take funny. Neil Diamond. I would too. But, I st- but still, it's, it's very. Uh, it's not, you know, Sinatra or. or Mel Torme or you know, hey, wait a second. No, I just got Barbara uh, Streisand. Uh, they're, they're, they're all hacks. Okay, yeah. I just got Spotify. Yes. A couple days ago. Mm-hmm. I never had it. Do you think that Sinatra is on Spotify? I don't know. You know who's not? Adele. I know. Her new album is Gutsy. a... Gutsy. You know what? I, I don't begrudge an artist no. not being on Spotify. It's no, fine. Of you know, whatever. Yeah, no, I mean, There's plenty of stuff on there. I, I got it. Here's, here's what I did. Okay, folks, this is my credibility is, is at stake right now. I literally yesterday, I kid you not, uh, signed up for Spotify, 10, 10 bucks a month. Mm-hmm. Now I'm Jewish. That's so a big thing for me. Yeah. Okay. So what's the first song, the first artist that I looked up on Spotify? Jimi Hendrix, right? Of course you did. Listen to some Hendrix. Yeah. Then I thought to myself, 
I wonder if they have film composers. I don't know because I'm not that familiar with Spotify. So I looked up James Horner. And ladies and gentlemen, they had James Horner. You know who else is on Spotify? Yeah, Tom Jones. We're, we're going to talk about a book right out of the gate. we got a few books today. And uh, I, I just, everyone knows I'm a Tom Jones fanatic. I've loved Tom Jones for years. Tom has the voice. He's just the man. And uh, Tom has a new album out, but he also has, more important than the new album, is his long-awaited and oh-so-incredibly-revealing oh so and frank autobiography. Uh, Tom Jones, Over the Top and Back, the autobiography, is, uh, is a great book. It's a really great book. It, of course, has a current portrait of Tom on the front and then a, uh, a vintage portrait of a uh, vintage black-and-white photo of Tom on the back, just hanging out, just a bloke from Wales, right? He was the best. In the He's 60s. still is the best. He is. Such uh, energy. You, you know what? This is an amazing book. It's really an amazing book. If you just want a fantastic inside the music biz read, because here's the thing. How many people? Six. Exactly. How many people were there when Tom was there? I mean, mid-60s, when it's just, it's kicking, right? I mean, it's, you're, you know, you're, you're coming out of the 50s and into this amazing era where you've got, uh, you know, this, all these different styles and progressive rock is about to hit. And, you know, it's just like this, that's Rolling Stones and The Who and that era. Everything is going. Tom comes of age in that period, and he's still there. And his, he covers the whole breadth of that. I mean, it is, it is literally the history of rock and roll. It is amazing. And well, it was funny. When you take a look at what music was in the 50s and what music was in the 60s, I mean, it's 180 degrees. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you're talking about young kids who, you know, they, young kids, they don't want to, they don't like their stayed, the stayed nope. music of their parents. They want something they can shake their hips to, you know. And then yeah. you get a guy like uh, Tom Jones, who was very yeah. sexual, you know, in his music. And in his stage persona, and kids really responded to that, and it was and the re, part of the reason they responded to it was because their parents hated it. Absolutely true. And that's all right. So we're going to start off real quickly because uh, this is, of course, going to be live the week of Thanksgiving and Black Friday and all that. So I want to get a Thanksgiving specific thing out there first, which is uh, Jim Henson's Turkey Hollow, uh, which stars Mary Steenburgen and Jay Harrington, and uh, is narrated by Ludacris. Um, so this is the only uh, Hall uh, Halloween, t the only Thanksgiving-specific thing, but it might as well be Halloween because these are just some creepy creatures. Uh, but uh, actually, it's it's quite fun and quite entertaining, and uh, it just says that it tells you that the uh, the Jim Henson legacy continues to carry on. Um, and honestly, uh, the, the creature shop just keeps they keep creating more and more cool things. In the age of CGI, I'm thrilled that they do. Uh, essentially, this is about a, a single dad and his kids who are going to uh, Mary Steenburgen, who's his aunt, for a Thanksgiving celebration. And in the woods, there are strange things, like lots of Henson puppetry. And it's a lot of fun. So that is Jim Henson's Turkey Hollow. Uh, really a, a lot of fun. A really good film to throw on when you're, you're digesting with the family. Mark, let's talk about some really great titles for, for our gift guide. What, what cool, awesome new stuff do we have? Well, you just handed me these five, and then they're not all great. I'm just saying. So, well, I'm trying to segue here. Yeah, not a very good segue. Okay, okay so uh, let's do two uh, Back to the Future uh, Blu-rays. We have Back in Time, which is a documentary on the making of uh, Back to the Future. I, I watched this, and I have to say it's okay. My the only issues I have with it are it's a little padded. They go into some areas that really have nothing to do with the making of the movie and don't really interest me all that much. But if you're a fan, 
Oh, if, if you're a fan. If you're a fan, you'll enjoy it, and you'll skip through the part where the guy talks about how uh, he invented something based on his love of the, of the movie. He went yeah. and invented some stupid thing that no one yeah. cares about. Um, but it's, you know what? They do get everybody. They get Michael J. Fox. They get Bob Zemeckis. They get Spielberg. You get the usual every studio turned us down stories that all these movies always have. Um, but uh, but it's good. It's ninety five minutes. It's a little bit again. It, this thing should be like you know eighty minutes. It's it's okay. But uh, if you're a big fan of the film, you will definitely want to check this out. And because uh, we also have in tandem with that a new Back to the Future trilogy Blu Ray set, and I don't know what to say, folks. This is already out on Blu Ray. <laughs> yeah. So all I'll say is um, this is essentially the same. Um, there it does have a slimmer. new bonus. It's slimmer. It does have a, it does have a. A disc that is dedicated to just the special features, yeah. which I guess is fine. It's not that it opens up more space for the uh, for the transfer to look better because it's the same transfer. But um, and there's a new short with Doc Brown. Christopher Lloyd plays Doc Brown in this new short, which is whatever. Just trying to, you know, it is a they try to spend a little bit of money to justify putting it out again. Well, it is kind of a Back to the Future. Um, anniversary year moment in the sense that we are now past the date that was the future in the, you know. Oh, don't think, as a New York Met fan, don't think yeah. I know that. <laughs> because in the movie, the Cubs were going to win the World Series in 2015. Yeah, yeah. And the Mets ruined that by sweeping them. Yes, they did. Bam. <laughs> Bam. <laughs> the Mets destroyed the synchronicity of Back to the Future. Uh, <laughs> <too> <laughs> And then yeah. we sucked in the World Series. Anyway, uh, so back to the Future Trilogy. If you already own the uh, previous one, do not sell that one to get this one. But if you do not own a Back to the Future uh, well. Blu-ray set, get that one. Uh, 20th anniversary of Bad Boys uh, 1 and 2. This is uh, Martin Lawrence and Will Smith, Michael Bay. These movies are terrible, and they're loud and annoying, and uh, I just uh, I rue the day that, uh, that these came out. <laughs> but the good thing is that now you get them all on one I, little tiny box set. I'm not a fan of the first film. I kind of like the second one, and I'll tell you why. Because um, it's a, it, it's as it's up to the task of its obnoxiousness. It, the first one, Michael Bay wasn't quite yet Michael Bay. He was just Michael Bay making a movie with uh, you know Will Smith and Martin Lawrence. And um, I I kind of feel like he with Bad Boys Two, he felt like he could go over the top because people were expecting it. And so you do get some obnoxious stuff that's pretty funny. The chase scene, totally over the top on the freeway, but it's fun. And uh, the whole bit with Martin Lawrence, you know, being wigged out on 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 drugs and uh, you know drinking water out of the, the the vase, and I mean that's that stuff is slapsticky, but I found it funny. So um, I'm not totally down on all this. By the way, can I say something? Yeah. And this is this is completely reductive because we're talking about African American comics. Yeah. I saw two things today. Really? Two things. Just two. Just two. All day. I saw the trailer for the new Dwayne Johnson. Kevin Hart comedy. Yeah. And then, before I drove yeah. here to do uh-huh. the podcast, I watched Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor oh, in dear. Silver Streak. There okay. you go. So, you have Kevin Hart, who, by the way, not funny. Not funny at all. Not funny at all. I don't get it. I, I do, all he does is say things, this kind of a voice, and then you think it's hilarious. <laughs> what does he say that's funny? What does he say that's clever? Nothing. He, he's funny. He has great timing. No, he doesn't. He does Every, every actor in Hollywood has great timing, or else he wouldn't be an actor. And then you get Richard Pryor, who's, you know, genius. An icon, a genius. Yeah. Yeah, all right. I'm with you. Kevin Hart. Oh, we also have, uh, by the way, throw this in. Uh, we have Hobbit, uh, the last Hobbit film. Um, this, this is, is the Blu-ray. extended edition, we should point out. This yeah, is so this one's only seven and a half hours as opposed to the original, <laughs> which is uh, six hours. 
And, uh, you know, there are people who enjoy these uh, Hobbit movies better than Lord of the Rings. Wow. There are people, they, yes. You're talking about me specifically. Yeah, Wade yeah. Major. Yeah. Wade Xavier Major, who enjoys the, enjoy the Hobbit sorry. films. I'm sorry. I enjoy the I thought it was, a, it was a fun trilogy. I didn't expect to. I, I shocked myself. So, so the thing is go. that if you're Peter Jackson, what, what happens now? True. You know, Guillermo del Toro is kind of taking your thing a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. You know, what, what, do, you, uh, what do you do next? So, uh, I'm I got that free from Criterion. I got that in the mail. Did you? Oh, sweet. Did you get it? Yeah. This. So, Criterion. Yes. I don't know why. Now, I don't know why they did this. I, th- th- there was a card that was included, which I didn't read because I was so happy to get something for free. This card. Yeah. Oh, is that it? That's the card. Hang on. Let me see. Let me read this. <laughs> we, we got this from Criterion. Hang on. Yes. Out of my glasses. Hang on. This is what the card read. I can't read. Uh, uh, you, I, I out of my glasses. Yeah, you read it. I'll read the card. This is this is what now I'm okay. Wait, this is who got these? Is did, did critics get know. them? Did members of the press get them? It, it is. Let's just put it this way. This is uh, this is it. We're, what we are talking about very cryptically is what maybe I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm going to say this is the most important Criterion release ever of all time. And considering that we are now up to 785 films, that's a big deal. This is the most important release Criterion has ever had, and it is my pick for the season if you are a classic movie fan. We are talking about the remarkable and meticulously restored Apu trilogy, uh, Satyajit Ray's amazing uh, Bengali trilogy of films, uh, the, the great masterpieces of, uh, of Indian cinema. And it includes uh, Padre Panchali, Aparajito, and Apu Sansar, which mean literally the song of the little road is Padre Panchali, uh, Aparajito is the unvanquished, and Apur Sansar is the world of Apu. Okay, wait. Here's the thing. These are these are basically like the uh, it, it's it's his version, uh, not even his version, but to 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 Ray, this is like the uh, Antoine Duanel films for Truffaut, right? It is sort of the story of a life from childhood to adulthood in a number of films. Okay, if we tell our Listeners, yes, that they have to watch this. Yes, is this like eating your vegetables, or is it like an actual movie that you would sit no. there and turn it on and go, "Wow, that's an interesting movie. I like this movie." Once you, Father uh, uh, Panchali is very arty. I mean, it is essentially a story of a very, very poor family and their suffering. But what you know, that is a little slower, and he made it for next to no money. And it's, 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 you know, it's, it's like, it's like watching paint dry on some level. But once you get into the second and the third films, it, it, he is a more experienced filmmaker. He's a more robust filmmaker. I still think Padre Panchali is more of a masterpiece from a pure filmic standpoint, considering the limitations. But those the, the second and third films just sort of round everything out in a wonderful way. And let me tell you a little bit of trivia here. Um, some years ago, there was a movie called My Family, Mi Familia. Do you remember this? Sure. You remember that? Uh, okay. Now that's not the Gregory Nava. That's not that's the Gregory, Gregory Nava, Nava film. Thing. Okay, so uh, Nava essentially ripped off the world of Apu to make that movie. I kid you not. There's a certain if you've seen the world of Apu, and you're watching My Family, Me Familia. At a certain point, you go, wait a minute. This is like scene for scene, character for character, verbatim. It's just it, the the only difference is that if he, you know, instead of this being the story of a guy who's you know going to try to redeem this woman whose arranged marriage fell apart because the uh, the husband died or whatever, now he's trying to marry a woman because she needs citizenship. Right? It tur- they turn it into a whole kind of American Mexican cross border citizenship drama, but everything else about it is is spot on exactly. Uh, so, you know, all due respect to Nava, but he, he just like kind of shamelessly ripped the movie off. But anyway, here, let me, let me read you the, the card that they sent to us because Criterion doesn't do this. 
Dear friends and colleagues, in thanks for your support during uh, a great year for Janus Films, we are proud to share with you the Criterion Collection's Blu-ray edition of Satyajit Ray's world-renowned masterpiece, The Apu Trilogy. This historic release, re-release was the highlight of Janus's theatrical calendar in 2015, long thought impossible after the original negatives were burned in a fire in 1993, this glorious 4K restoration involving nearly a thousand hours of hand labor to repair the burned footage and months of meticulous digital restoration is the culmination of years of work by Criterion, the Academy Film Archive, and L'Imagine Ritrovata. All of this would have been for naught were it not for the tremendous critical and press uh, support the films received, and thanks to your efforts, the restorations have been shown on hundreds of screens nationwide and exposed tens of thousands of viewers to Ray's miraculous trilogy as it was meant to be seen. Janice had a banner year outside of Apu as well. We were proud to give Les Blanc's long-suppressed 1974 documentary about Leon Russell, A Room is a Naked Person, a poem is a naked person, uh, its first theatrical run more than 40 years after it was made. There was a touring retrospective of 12 restored films by Vim Vendors, including previously hard-to-find works such as the, goalie, the Goalie's Anxiety at the Penalty Kick and the director's cut of Until the End of the World, which we can probably expect soon too, hopefully. Uh, we released a fully restored version of Grey Gardens by the late Maisley's Brothers, and we provided a new release for Jellyfish Eyes by Japanese pop art superstar Takashi Murakami. Thank you for helping make it a stellar year. That's Isn't that why lovely? I, we got this yes. for free because we are members of the press. So, by the it, way, it's a big deal. Speaking of big deal, yes. now, did you hear Criterion just announced their slate for January? Uh, for January, mm-hmm. including The Graduate. Yeah. And you know what's on The Graduate? Uh, the original commentary, the original Laserdisc commentary that hasn't been heard in about 30 years by one of my very good friends and my former college professor, Howard Suber. So there. Wait, what's that sound? Was that you dropping a name? Yes, it was. So, uh, That's I'm a big very, deal. It's a big deal. Suber did a number of commentaries uh, for Criterion at that time, and this is the first one to finally make it back to, uh, back to, uh, to Blu-ray. Well, so it's great. And then Criterion, they have no Nichols films. This is the first Mike Nichols film yeah. they're going to have. Yeah. Well, so it's we, obvi- it, 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 obviously they had to work something out with MGM, but anyway. Very exciting. So. Uh, you just want me to talk about mystery science. Go ahead. Get that out okay, of the way. Okay, wait. It's becoming mechanical. Mystery Science Theater has another box set out. This is number 34. Mm-hmm. If you like the movies, you should buy this. There are so effing many of these, mm-hmm. and I love mystery science. Okay, it's beautiful. Tell them I what, what movies are on it. I can't take it anymore. This is 34. 34. <laughs> the Sea Creature, mm-hmm. The Undead, War of the Colossal Beast, and The Viking Women. You used to love these. Uh, <laughs> yeah. When was the love gone? When did the love go? There's just too many. I mean, how many of these do I have? I don't know. So uh, now that we got that out of the way, here, here uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go into uh, some other new movies uh, that are out there. And uh, there's some really great stuff here. This is not new, but this is new to Blu-ray. And it is from Zeitgeist. It is the Quay Brothers Collected Short Films on Blu-ray. People have been waiting this for a long time. The, uh, the Quay Brothers, of course, the, or the Brothers Quay, as they're often called. Uh, this is a, a monumental deal. Stop-motion geniuses, largely from the Czech school. Uh, and uh, included here is The Cabinet of Jan Svankmeyer, who, of course, is a uh, huge inspiration of theirs. Uh, the Unnameable Little Broom, Street of Crocodiles, Rehearsals for Extinct Anatomies, 
uh, Stillenacht uh, 1 through 4, uh, the Comb, Anamorphosis, uh, in absentia, the Phantom Museum, Masca, through the sleep, through the weeping glass, unmistaken hands, and uh, then there is a uh, Christopher Nolan documentary on here, which is uh, you know amazing because Nolan just admires the hell out of these guys. So uh, if, if, if this is just a wonderful gift for anybody who's a fan of animation, anybody who is a fan, especially of the Brothers Quay, who have kind of you know gone off the grid a little bit, this is a big deal. Wait, it's a big deal, but what you have in your hand is a bigger deal. Well, we're going to get to that in a moment because one of our special interviews today is tied. What? Yes. Uh, also, if you are a Pixar fan, you're going to want to – a Pixar or Disney fan, uh, you're going to obviously want to pick up Inside Out, the Ultimate Collector's Edition, uh, which we have here in Blu-ray, Blu-ray 3D, Digital HD, which is the Disney Anywhere version, and, of course, DVD. So this is every conceivable version all in one set. Uh, Inside Out is a movie I am enormously fond of, even though I think it's a cheat. I think you are still a fan as well. I'm a fan of it. Yes, yeah. absolutely. You, one of Pixar's best? Um, or, people really respond to this. I, I yeah. didn't respond to the film as much as a lot of other people did, yeah. um, ma- ma- mainly because I, I don't have... Children? Children. Yeah. I was a child, Yeah. but that's in the distant past now, so... I mean, as everyone knows, it takes place inside a little girl's head, and it's, you know, different characters, all the different emotions. My only problem with it is that the adventure that takes place inside her head, uh, corresponding, obviously, to all of her life crises, you know, outside, is that they pretty much invent this anything-goes world. I mean, when you, when you have a world where you invent, no, where there are no rules, where anything can happen, you just sort of make it happen by wanting it to happen, then the adventure is, it seems a little bit less credible. That's but. true. But what, then again, when it comes to Oscars, it'll be either this or the adventurous members will go for Anomalisa, which is the Charles Coffin film. What do you think about Moomins, that, that Moomins thing? The Moominshans? No, Moomins. Moomins on the Riviera. I've not seen that yet. You haven't. Do we have the screener for that? Uh, they are sending the screener out okay. to everybody. Yeah. I've not seen it. It, uh, it could be a deal. There's, there's a lot of real dark horse animated films. Right. There are. And then also on the Pixar Disney end is a Toy Story that time forgot. Uh, of course, toys are always appropriate for Christmas and Hanukkah and the whole holiday season. And uh, this is, you know, a, a special uh, little one-off 22-minute uh, uh, you know, deal for the season with a lot of uh, great animated features, like bonus features, and uh, and you know, look, if you're a Toy Story person, this is the one to get. Just add it to the pile. It's it's 22 minutes long. It's great for the kids. And uh, as long as we're talking about film restoration with the Apu trilogy, Mark, this is a big deal too. Big deal. Big deal. My, George Bernard Shaw. My Fair Lady. Uh, the previous Blu-ray of My Fair Lady. Now, now, there's an interesting history to My Fair Lady because it was originally a Warner Brothers release, but it's been a CBS Paramount title for a number of years now, which is a very strange thing, and a lot of people may wonder how that how that came to pass. And you're going to find out in, in the interview that's going to follow this, uh, this moment, uh, the next segment. But this is an amazing three-disc set of the uh, completely restored My Fair Lady. They, they cleaned this thing up to an unbelievable degree. There was a previous restoration. The last Blu-ray released did not reflect that restoration. So this is a new Blu-ray cleanup, a new restoration that reflects the previous restoration, if that makes sense. And you'll find out more when I run the piece. So I hope I didn't completely mutilate and misrepresent the process. But this is as good as this film has ever looked. And it's one of my favorite films of all time. Uh, This is just so swanky. Mark, look, look at the case. 
This is it's a, a beautiful case. But see, it's one it's of a, these. It's got, it's got like a magnet or something. It's, it's like a it's a it's a little fold open magnet case deal. It's kind of like a digipack, but it doesn't have the. It has little mi- mini pockets inside, uh, and it's got three discs. And you open it up and look at that great quote inside. Come on, Dover, move your blooming arse. There you go. It's, is that how they read it in the movie? Is I'm that sure how they it said is. It? That's absolutely how Audrey Hepburn read it, and that's why it's such a classic uh, quote, and why they put it in the middle of the uh, in the in the centerfold. Uh, the uh, this is just a beautiful, beautiful piece. If you, I mean, you have to have this. No movie fan should be without this. Tons of great extras on here. All of them uh, new. It includes the uh, a lot of vintage stuff. Um, the making of My Fair Lady then and now, more loverly than ever. Uh, the 1963 production kickoff dinner. Uh, the premieres from L.A. and England, um, some great behind-the-scenes stuff, production tests, uh, the British Film Institute uh, evening in honor of Rex Harrison, uh, his Golden Globes acceptance speech, a, a bunch of other behind-the-scenes things, uh, alternate Audrey Hepburn vocals, which, you know, she didn't, obviously, she, Marnie Nixon did her voice, which, I, I, may I name drop again? Yes, Marty Nixon. Marty Nixon was selected by another old professor of mine, Rudy Fair, who's a famous editor. He did Key Largo, and he and his daughter did Princey's Honor. Rudy Fair was one of my editing teachers at UCLA, and he was head of production at Warner Brothers at the time, and was sitting there when they were trying to figure out who would do the voice for Audrey Hepburn. And Marty was one of them. And he, he just he, Jack Warner threw his hands up and said, "You know, blankety blanket, I don't know. They're all the same to me. You pick Rudy." And he walked out, and Rudy Fair basically picked Marty Nixon. So bravo to my, my beloved Rudy Fair, who uh, has passed on, but he was a great editing teacher. In any case, uh, and you, when you watch these vocals, you understand that Audrey Hepburn really should not have done her own singing in the very, very vocally demanding scenes. Fair enough. Um, and that's it. You know, there's a, the Rex Harrison radio interview. In any case, the genius behind the restoration of this and many other fine films including Lawrence of Arabia and Vertigo, and the list goes on and on and on and on, is the great archivist and uh, the, the, the dean of American film restoration, uh, Robert Harris. And I, uh, Robert Harris has spoken to our listeners before, we've interviewed him before, and uh, I thought I'd, uh, I'd solicit his insight into this and the state of restoration in general, and he, uh, was a, he was kind enough to speak to us for a few minutes. So here is our interview, our holiday interview with the great Robert Harris. And we are once again honored to be speaking with the great archivist uh, and film restoration guru, Robert Harris, a, a longtime friend of this podcast as well. Robert, thank you for, uh, for agreeing to talk to us this holiday season with respect to what I think is uh, some of your, you just keep outdoing yourself, one of your, your best jobs ever, which is the new Blu-ray of My Fair Lady. It is just gorgeous. Well, thank thank you, Wade. It's a pleasure visiting you as always. Um, it, it I should make the point: it's not me. It's an extraordinary number of uh, audio people and archivists and people that uh, know the very get very delicate ins and outs of digital cleanup and color and all of the the various things that go into a restoration that uh, elect to put up with me for six months or more. Well, I, and I have to say, uh, being privileged as I was to, to sit in on, on one of those sessions for, uh, for The Godfather uh, and Godfather Part Two uh, in the same booth with you and Alan 
Davyao at that, that one moment, I, I do find it extraordinary how meticulous the work is. I, I don't think people fully understand what goes into it, that, that you literally sit there and you will stare at a single frame and, and, and spot all of the deficiencies in the blown-up frame and just clean it up uh, almost as, as if you were detailing uh, a battleship. It's, it's really an unbelievable task. Well, one of one of the interesting things, and we we you never know quite what to expect when you open the cans. But my fair lady, the original negative had changed a bit in the intervening 20 years between the analog restoration that we did in 1994 and the most recent, is that we ended up with uh, mold on the separation masters, which we really hadn't used much 20 years ago because we had no way of putting them together properly. And that was because they had shrunken and wouldn't fit together, and we were only able to do it this this time um, digitally. But what we found was that we had differential shrinkage, uh, differential shrinkage, yes, and also differential uh, fade at the heads and tails of shots, where um, air would basically get it get in around the splices, and. So there were situations where you have that wonderful long shot of Wilfred Hyde White and Audrey Hepburn. First, first time that you really see her in her ascot dress, um, and the color on the head and tail of the shot was rather different than the color on the middle of the shot. Oh dear. So Mark Griffith, a.k.a. Griff at uh, Photochem, our colorist, would hone in on the center of the shot, get the whites, the blacks, the color, everything dead on perfect, and then literally work his way out to the head and tail of the shot, doing dissolves and one-frame color changes and things of that sort. So absolutely correct. Uh, people really don't know what's, what's involved. I mean, it, it took us five and a half, six months to do color. It, it's in it, in problems. It, and what you're saying, too, it sounds like you, you, obviously, the digital tools keep getting better and better and better, which is obviously an improvement over a lot of the analog tools that you used to use in the pre-digital era. But it sounds like what you're saying is that you still have to, in certain cases, sort of improvise with those tools and use them in, in creative ways. And it's not just a matter of just following the instruction book. No, there there almost isn't an instruction book. It, it's... Um practice day in and day out by the colorist and by the uh, the digital artists. But, you know, we have a lot of tools, and many people think, hey, there's a tool. This is a great new toy. Let's use it. And 90% of the time, you don't want to use it. 90% of the time, you want to stick to the basics. You don't want to um, go beyond primary controls on color and things like that unless you have to. You don't want to get into color win uh, power windows, rather, unless you have to. And, you know, you, you want to work with the people that really know how to use those tools. And, yes, uh, we're able to do things now that in the digital world that we weren't able to do, oh, pre-2007, 2006, it's only been through 2007 that we've had the ability to use 4K for data throughput. Um, so it, it, it hasn't been long. And there are still very few 4K restorations being done. They're extremely expensive. The, uh, I think the most recent was probably Sean Belston uh, from Fox did Oklahoma. Uh, 
Wilbur Crisp did some some nice work recently on on Lee on the professional. So there there are you know a handful of people out there doing 4K work, and the tools are wonderful, but you have to use when you you have to know how to use them, how not to use them, and when not to use them. The the right situation of My Fair Lady is such an interesting story as well, and uh, I, I'd like for you to just, if you could sort of detail that for our listeners, because the thing that, that threw me for a loop with the first Blu-ray release, which I know you were not a big fan of, uh, which came out from Paramount and CBS, and I remember when, that, when we received that, it, it kind of threw me for a loop, and I thought I knew the history of this film inside out, and I thought, well, wait a minute, this is a, this is a Warner Brothers film. How did this wind up? With the as a CBS and Paramount release, that just threw me for a complete loop. And then you filled me in on the on the very strange rights history by which this is was at the time and still is um, a, a CBS and Paramount release and not a Warner release. Which at the time it was one of Jack Warner's proudest moments. So could you detail exactly how that very strange chain of title actually uh, occurred? Well. I believe, and I'm not positive here, that the initial investment for the Broadway show came from CBS because they wanted the record album. So they owned the show. Um, beyond that, um, I mean, that that's really the most basic point. Jack Warner wanted to make the film. He loved the show. And he agreed to a deal in which he paid something like $5 million, which was an unheard of amount at that time for an underlying literary property, to which he added another $7 million in production funds at the studio. Um, and basically what happened is that he agreed to a very short-term license to the underlying in which he would have the right to distribute the film from 1964 through approximately 1970 or 71, at which time the original camera negative, the separation masters, all of the original tracks, and the copyright would revert to CBS. And My Fair Lady, therefore, became one of the crown jewels, or possibly the crown jewel, in the CBS library. Just and, fascinating. Uh, they they sublicensed it back to Warner Brothers for home video. And uh, now with the Viacom ownership of Paramount and CBS, you have that duality. Just so fascinating. it goes out through Paramount. It's just fascinating. And, and uh, you know, things like, like the RKO production of Citizen Kane are in the Warner Library. So, um, you know, strange strange things happen in Hollywood. It, uh, in any case, it, it, is a, it is really a gorgeous set. And the film, I mean, it's a three-disc set. We should let people know. I, I love the packaging, which is one of these sort of very slimline uh, magnet cases, three discs inside the uh, Blu-ray film, well, that, Blu-ray that special packaging, features. That packaging, as well as the packaging for the 1994, came from Ken Ross, who heads up CBS Home Entertainment. And he has incredible taste. He does. And you, you can you can really sense that in just handling these box sets. And anything that he puts out is going to be as perfect as it possibly can. Given relative to other other jobs that you've done in the past, I know they're all entirely different. They all present different challenges and, and I know especially with the Godfather you, you had some, some huge mountains to climb. How did uh, your experience with My Fair Lady in this incarnation in particular, how did this sort of compare to others? Very difficult. 
very difficult because over 20 minutes of the film no longer existed in camera negative. And we had to go to the 65-millimeter black-and-white separation masters. Those had to be registered to perfection. Uh, they had grown mold on them in the intervening years, and that mold had to be digitally removed. And when you're doing 8K scans at Photochem, uh, you're exposing everything that's on that film element. So there's no getting around anything. There's no hiding and any bit of uh, dirt, damage, scratches, wear, tears, it's all there and it all has to be cleaned up. But probably the, the biggest challenge was the, the differential fade um, and a, a yellow layer that was starting to go on the original negative, which does things like turn blacks into blues and you start losing your, uh, your proper facial colors. But uh, it was just a, a, a long, difficult job and uh, keeping the blacks pure and the whites pure. And uh, day by day, you, you take it a shot at a time and you work your way through it. Well, it's, it's just it's so impressive. Let's, let's uh, move just for a second to the issue of 70 millimeters, 65 neg versus, uh, versus 35, because that also presents certain challenges, especially when you're, where you're working with 4K. Um, did did that? Uh, I, I you know recently Lawrence, of course, which is is the the thing that the people always come back to with you because it's just the the most I think probably the most popular and legendary restoration of the last half century. How did this, uh, in terms of working with the the negative and and the format, the large format, how did this compare to Lawrence? Very similar because. Both negatives had been overprinted. One thing that your your listeners may not understand is that the more popular the film uh, doesn't mean that it's being better taken care of. For large format films, every single 70 millimeter print, every uh, replacement head or tail of a theater messed up the head or tail of a reel, they would go back to the original camera negative and strike new footage. And both Lawrence and My Fair Lady had been run well over about 170 times. Wow between making um, 35 millimeter matrices for reduction printing, dupes, things of, uh, you know, you, you, you would use the original negative for virtually everything. Mm. And those elements were just totally worn out. They were trashed. Splices would open up as you would try to print them. Um, and each one, you, you just know, and luck can be with you or against you. And in Lawrence of Arabia, um, splice opened up at printing during printing and um, trying to create the first duplicating positive, which would be a, a, an asset um, and a protection element. Shot opened up just before Peter blows out the match. In My Fair Lady, which shot tore up the middle, the shot of Audrey coming down the, the stairs in the ball gown. Wow. And then you, you go back to whatever element that you have, and you try to replicate that shot. Back in 1994, uh, as protection, I will always make, once I have really basic color into a show, I will always make an interpositive, lest something goes wrong, because we knew at that time that the separation masters would not fit together properly. And that shot in 1994 came off an interpositive, and uh, resolution was was down, color was a, a bit funky. Uh, that's a technical term. Uh, 
um, in last year, we were able to take the separation masters for that shot. We were able to sharpen it very slightly, and there's absolute transparency. And that's what you're going for is transparency between dupes and originals. You don't want the audience to have any idea that you're using different elements. What is so? What is the landscape right now for for film restoration? I think everyone seems to think that uh, you know we have all these great digital tools, and it's uh, that brings the cost down, and uh, everyone seems to be paying a little bit more attention to their libraries, and so we we're we're saving everything. Is that true? Are we are we no, in, a, in a good place? It, we're not in a good place because we don't have the money to do it. The studios don't have the money to do it. They are limited. Uh, by what they can afford to put out on an annual basis. Budgets are tight. They're extremely prudent. They know which films need to be done. They know which films can be put off for a year or two or more. Uh, the original negatives are generally all kept, kept in very cold vaults. And you know whether you're going back to a nitrate element or you're going back to an Eastman color element, you know which ones are faded you know where you have to go, but if you don't have the money to do it, that's a problem. And also, uh, one of the major problems in doing anything in high resolution is that the higher the resolution, the worse the cost of the cleanup. If you're cleaning something up in HD, for example, or let's go back even further, if you're cleaning something up for VHS, the uh, functionality of the... Um, the platform itself hides a multitude of sins. If you're doing something in HD or 2K, you're doing three or four times the amount of cleanup with the requisite cost. If you're going to 4K, and especially if you're working from a 65 millimeter element that's been scanned at 8K, you can go from a $25,000 cleanup cost to a $250,000, $300,000 cleanup cost. I mean, one of the things that you'll occasionally read in a, um, especially the Criterion or some of the other uh, Blu-ray releases, and they give you wonderful information about what was scanned, who did the scanning, everything that, that's done along the way, and people will say, well, you know, thousands of bits of, of dirt and, and uh, damage were removed, or tens of thousands of bits of dirt. My Fair Lady, we calculated that over 12 million pieces, there were over 12 million fixes to make the film look proper, which is huge, and it's extremely expensive. And that's the problem for all the studios today. If you're going to go back to your camera negative, and if you're going to start cleaning and doing color, um, and let, let me explain something else. In a lot of situations, you'll get a Blu-ray, and it's from an interpositive or an IP that has... 90 or 95 percent of the color already baked into it. You may have to do 15 or 20 hours of color at five or six hundred dollars an hour. Mm -hmm. If you're going back to the camera negative, you're then doing 300 hours of color. Oh wow! Oh, so wow. you know, one allows you to get a product out on Blu-ray. One allows you to create an asset, yeah. but the costs. I mean, you're you're looking at for the average black and white film to do it properly from a camera negative, you're you're looking for seventy five to a hundred thousand dollars. For a color film that needs to be totally recolored, you can be looking at two hundred and fifty, three hundred, five hundred, six hundred thousand dollars. 
go to 65 millimeter and you're up into seven figures. Wow. And that's not wow. the most difficult ones. You could go into multiple seven figures yeah. in some situations. Wow. Well, so um, we should be, <laughs> I'd, I'd like to say we should be lobbying our, our congressperson, but uh, I guess lobby the studios. Well, the studios are doing everything that they can. Yeah. And it, it's, it's, a, it, just, it's just a matter of getting them done one at a time. So what else is on your plate right now that you can talk about? Is there anything exciting that people should be looking forward to? As you're probably aware, I've been trying to get the Alamo uh, yes. moving, but that one uh, apparently MGM doesn't want to save it. And the other one that I'm trying to move forward I can't talk about yet. Well, I will. I will urge all of our. We'll, as soon as we know, we will certainly let our listeners know. And uh, I, I await clearance to be able to uh, tell them what they can look forward to. But it's. Uh, I think everyone feels, as I do, that we are. We are glad to have you on the case and uh, and taking care of our amazing cultural heritage. And you know, the new the new My Fair Lady is just a further witness to your extraordinary skills. So so Bob, thank you once again for talking to us. And My pleasure, Wade, as always. And, and best of luck on all of your endeavors. Take care. Thank you. You got it. Always a lot of fun talking to Robert Harris. It's um, I'll, I'll tell you, having seen him work, it's just he's just he's just a master. You know, it's uh, it's really extraordinary what he does. And he, uh, I, I wish they'd give him like an honorary Oscar or something one of these years because he's just he's amazing. Well, people amazing. don't realize how uh, you know restoration seems like such inside baseball type stuff, but you have to understand it's incredible. You know, a huge percentage of films that were made before I, I, I think like it's, I think the numbers like eighty percent of all silent yeah. films were gone. Yeah, forever. It's true. It's true. And so that stuff's very important. All right. Well, a few more, a few more uh, kind of newish and classical-ish um, things to throw into the gift guide before we get into some other stuff. And we're gonna have a, we're gonna talk about our giveaways here in a moment. Uh, AD, the Bible continues. Um, I, I'm not a huge fan of this. I wasn't a huge fan of the Bible, but uh, this is the uh, Mark Burnett and Roma Downey thing. Uh, and this basically kind of continues the rest of the story of the, the apostles and Apostle Paul and all of that. And uh, it's the same vibe. And, uh, you know, for the holiday season, it's a thing. There's, there's a certain religious aspect to the holidays for, for Jews and Christians. This isn't something that's going to be a Hanukkah gift. Nobody's going to give you uh, A.D. The Bible continues for Hanukkah. But for Christians, this is certainly, uh, this is certainly in, the, in the wheelhouse and something that would be appreciated on a, on a you know, Christmas morning, I'm sure. And then uh, utterly unreligious is uh, the uh, from BBC Doctor Who Dark Water Death in Heaven 3D, uh, which you know if you if anybody still has their their 3D TVs, uh, Doctor Who in 3D I guess has some some cachet. But uh, this is actually this is hugely popular the uh, the, the whole Dark Water Death in Heaven thing. So um, you know, I'm, are you a fan of uh, of what's his face as the new Doctor Who? I have never been a fan of any Doctor Who. I don't know Doctor Who. I've never watched Doctor Who. There's a phone booth and a, and, and, and a creature called a Tard. See, I really like Peter. But you like Peter Capaldi. He's great. I love him. Yeah. He's great. Well, because you liked him in uh, what was In, in The Loop. In The Loop. Hilarious. Yeah. But also it's uh, Benedict uh, Cumberbatch is, uh, was a Doctor Who, right? Yes, he was. Very exciting. Yeah. So yeah. now, what are these, Wade? You okay. handed me something. I, I know did. What well, well, we have covered most of these on the show before, but uh, we're gonna. They, they are part of our gift guide again, and and here here are. Let, let me just say this is what's being given away. Uh, a few weeks ago, I uh, I talked. I spoke very positively about the IndiePix Mix Ten, 
which is a bunch of great independent films from indie picks that are all in a in a 10 film boxed set including shooting stars jack taylor beverly hills front runner uh, echo tone evergreen um, the uh, the Devilles, Candyman, Axe in the Attic, uh, Artois the Goat, All My Friends Are Funeral Singers. That set of ten films. We're going to give away one of those. Now, anyone who enters our, our giveaways, we're going to do them all in a, in a blitz right now. All of our giveaways in a blitz because um, we want you to understand. Wait, what are you giving away? You're giving away one of those one, ten that you just read. That is it. A boxed set of those ten films. The Indie Picks Mix 10 boxed set. Oh, ten indie films. One box. Um, send us an email, and all of the giveaways have to be. You got to put down. You got to send us your name and your address. Your name and your mailing address. Send it to gods at digigods.com. Gods at digigods.com. And in this case, put giveaway indie. I N D I E. Giveaway indie. Okay, because all the giveaways are gonna. They're all gonna get filed under it. That you have to put giveaway in the in the subject line, or else it's gonna get lost. So giveaway. Indie uh, and uh, giveaway of sport, of course spelled G I V E A W A Y. Don't spell it like in Swedish or anything. Uh, giveaway Indie and one lucky person will be the recipient of that box. Um, but you got it. Nobody. You have to pick which of the giveaways you're going to. We're not going to. If you anybody who applies for more than one giveaway, disqualified. And then uh, here are a bunch of really great titles from Warner Brothers. Mark, tell, tell the good people what Warner Brothers has by way of box sets and gift uh, suggestions for the holidays. No, wait. We're not giving these away. We are giving these away. We're giving all these away? All of them except for the uh, canon. That's right. So let I me don't just... have these. I want all these. <laughs> well, let me just say we're giving away. I'll, I'll, go, I'll, tell, I'll tell you exactly what we're giving away. 30th anniversary Diamond Lux edition of Gremlins. 25th anniversary Blu-ray book remastered uh, edition of Goodfellas, uh, the Frank Sinatra five-film collection on Blu-ray, Horror Classics Volume 1 on Blu-ray, and then a Blu-ray of Grease and a Blu-ray of Interstellar. Now, there's also a couple of others in here that uh, we're not giving away, which uh, is the, uh, the Canon and the Special Effects Collection. But those we are giving away. So I'll let Mark just uh, give a quick rundown of this stack. And then I will but I have you... to say nice things about it because we're giving them away. Exactly. That's, that's <laughs> your between a rock so and a hard place. <laughs> so I'm being completely impartial now. There you I? go. Exactly. I'm not. There you go. All right. We have Grease, uh, the Rock and Rydell edition. Now, I love Grease in all of its forms. Actually, that's not true. I love the first hour of Grease more than life itself. Yeah. But the second 45 minutes of Grease are okay. Yeah. That said, this is still a beloved film. Gotta love it. Um, so definitely check that out. A special effects collection. You know, I have to say, I, I like these films. I do. I grew up watching these films. Uh, let me let me retrace that. I was these films all came out before I was born. Yes. But I remember seeing them on television. Uh, Mighty Joe Young, The Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms, Son of Kong, and Them. Them, by the way, I have a very specific it's memory. Cool. Very specific memory. Now, Them is about giant radioactive ants that attack the world. I remember my mouse probably what sixteen years old or something like that. Again, this mm-hmm. came out long before I was born. But I remember being like maybe 14, 15 years old, and my mother served me a TV dinner, a classic Swanson's mm-hmm. horrible TV dinner, because I was a latchkey kid, and yep. then she came home, sure. and she gave me the TV dinner. Mm-hmm. And while I was watching the movie, while I was eating the dinner, Them was on TV. So mm-hmm. I was watching Them, eating this TV dinner, and I was so disgusted that there were gigantic radioactive ants being you know, incinerated on TV and killing mankind mm-hmm. that I couldn't eat 
the meat in the <laughs> TV dinner because somehow, again, I'm 14, folks. Yeah. Cut me some slack. I thought that the meat I was eating was the ant. Uh-huh. True story. Uh-huh. Okay. Let me <laughs> so I, say, I have five memories of them. I wouldn't say them was on TV because that's grammatically inco- incorrect. Them is on TV. Maybe. <laughs> hey, there you go. Anyway. So those are good films. The special effects yeah. good films. And we're not giving this one away, but, we, but these are good too. No, so, I mean, it is a, it is a, it's, a, it's a great box set for a gift. Uh, horror classics. Now, uh, folks, you know, uh, I hate to say this. I know we're giving this away, but uh, the Universal box set is the gold standard. But yes. if you already have that and you want like the bronze standard, <laughs> the silver standard, yeah. this is great. This is uh, The Mummy. Dracula has risen from the grave. Taste the blood of Dracula and Frankenstein must be destroyed, which is my favorite. It has Peter Cushing in it. Um, so there you go. Horror Classics, uh, Volume 1. Yeah. We also have Interstellar, which um, I was generally a fan of until I didn't know what happened at the end. Uh, this it's is also popular, available. though. It's a big popular film. It is a year. popular film. Gremlins. This is, you know what? I have to say, notice, Wade, yeah. the packaging for, for, this, for Gremlins. This mm-hmm. is the same packaging as, as My Fair Lady. It is. Yes, it is. It's the little so, magnet case. It's so, wonderful. So what I'm going to say to you is I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm going to say if you own other iterations of Gremlins, go ahead and trade those in yeah. and go get this. But, of course, it's, we're giving this away. It's swanky. Uh, the Frank Sinatra collection I was moderately impressed with because usually uh, there's like five films and four of them suck and there's one good one. This actually is pretty good. Anchors Away, On the Town, Guys and Dolls, Ocean's Eleven, the original, of course, and Robin and the Seven Hoods. I thought these Rat Pack films... Okay, I, I will say this. Mm-hmm. Ocean's Eleven, the original with Sinatra, is, is terrible. It's so boring. Yeah. It's like the worst film ever. But it's historically important. It's the Rat Pack. It's Peter Lawford. It looks great. I, 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 on the town is great. I love guys and dolls. I mean, come on, man. Come on. Marlon Brando singing. Yeah. Can't beat that. Robin and the seven hoods. I liked anchors away the, the least in terms of my favorites. But again, there really is no ringer in the bunch and no. there usually is. So the Frank Sinatra five film collection is a keeper. Then we're not giving this away, as Wade says. We have something that you really kind of have to get. And we covered this awesome. some week. We covered this some weeks ago, but it's well, why are we uh, it's, covering it, it again? Well, because it's it's a gift guide. Oh, got it. Uh, the bombs, <laughs> babes, and blockbusters of Canon Films ten pack DVD collection. These are ten of um, Canon Films' most famous slash infamous films. Canon with, with the great documentary on it. With the great documentary on it. Um, which I loved watching. It was so much fun. You've got your Dolph Lundgrens. You've got your Stallones. You've got your Van Dams. You've got your Chuck Norris. And 10 of these films, again, this is a, a Goldman Globus, the, uh, the two Israeli uh, cousins, right? They, uh, they, they, they buy this, uh, this library of Canon films, and then they take it and run it either, either, either even further into the ground yeah. than it already was. Isn't that pretty much the story? Uh, kind of, yeah, sort of. In any case, uh, let's, uh, let's give all of our listeners the uh, – this is what you need to do to win these titles. Uh, if you want to win Gremlins, it's only for one person, one person apiece, and you can't, you can't enter for more than one uh, of these titles. So if you want to win Gremlins, send us an email to godsatdigigods.com uh, with the subject line that says, Give away Gremlins. If you want to win Goodfellas, send us an email with the subject, Give away Goodfellas. For Sinatra, for the Frank Sinatra Five Film Collection, send us an email that says Giveaway Sinatra. Uh, for horror classics, the subject line should say Giveaway Horror. 
for Greece, give away Greece, and for Interstellar, give away Interstellar. Does that make sense? So Gremlins, Goodfellas, Sinatra, Horror, Greece, and Interstellar. Just put giveaway in front of whichever one you want to win and send us an email to godsatdigigods.com with your, um, your, your name and your address in the body of the email. And uh, we will select a winner um, by the end of the uh, by the end of the uh, Thanksgiving holiday. Make sure you get it to us no later than uh, the end of day on Sunday, and uh, we will uh, we will make a lot of people very very happy. So those are our giveaways, and uh, and that brings us to our next segment, a recurring segment every year with our good friend and Lafka colleague Alonzo Duralde, who is widely acknowledged to be the go-to expert in Christmas movies, and uh, we always like to let him uh, he he uh, co-host of the uh, Linoleum Knife podcast, which is also in Libsyn as we are. And uh, we're gonna, we always like to give him some time on the show to share his expertise in, uh, in Christmas cinema. So here, without further ado, is Alonzo. Hi, this is Alonzo Duraldi. I'm the film reviews editor for The Wrap, co-host of the Linoleum Knife podcast, and author of the holiday film guide, Have Yourself a Movie Little Christmas. If you've seen the ads for Love the Coopers, you've probably noticed that it's aimed at fans of the family stone, down to the casting of Diane Keaton as the beleaguered matriarch. But if you want a really great family comedy drama that's set at the holidays, check out Arnaud Desplechon's A Christmas Tale, available in a beautiful Blu-ray and DVD from the Criterion Collection. It's not your usual film, even though it does feature a mom who is uh, suffering from a terminal illness at Christmas time. But as played by Catherine Deneuve, it's one of the most unsentimental and uh, harshest maternal performances I think I've ever seen in a movie. Uh, as for her family, there is love there, but there's also a lot of rancor. There are uh, children who have been banished from the household who are now welcomed home because they might be necessary for tissue typing. Uh, there are references to everything from Kierkegaard to uh, Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments. It features a bevy of great performances from some of France's finest actors these days, including Mathieu Amalric, Chiara Mastroianni, and Melville Poupeau. Uh, this is a movie that slipped between the cracks for you in previous years. Check it out this December. It might become part of your annual holiday tradition. Have a terrific holiday season, whatever you celebrate. You know, I'm always amazed. Alonzo has to keep up every year. I mean, once you dedicate yourself to being the go-to Christmas movie reviewer expert guy, you've got to see them all. It's no a matter how mistress being there. It's, it, is, it is indeed. It is indeed. Okay, so with that, so here, here is uh, here's stuff that Alonzo undoubtedly will not have seen because <laughs> there's certain things you've you got to draw the line somewhere. Uh, actually, first off, just going to make mention of a couple of, um, uh, you know, special, like TV specials, which not movies. But uh, for those who want a little bit of music, uh, you've got from Lifetime and En Vogue Christmas, and uh, that's fine. Uh, you know, the... Uh, the whole uh, invoke thing has kind of fallen away a little bit. Um, this is uh, well, this is a this is a dramatic film, but it's also like a concert film. I you know it's a lifetime thing. It's basically a way of you know letting invoke perform and and giving it a little bit of a dramatic context, and it's fine. Uh, it, it don't really pay attention to the fact that it's it's got a script because it kind of doesn't doesn't really matter and then also the uh, glenn campbell good time hour christmas specials um poor glenn campbell is of course uh, the victim of alzheimer's and uh, is is fast fading away and leaving us but his legacy stays with us forever and uh these are these were just wonderful wonderful christmas specials when he had his uh television variety show in the heyday of the variety shows and uh, a lot of really wonderful performances here so um that's a nice little television blast from the past 
We also have. We also have uh, a thing called a, a Christmas horror story for people who just don't want to really be in the spirit of the season. And uh, it, it's just for people who are deeply cynical and, and uh, really just want to celebrate Christmas with something that's horrifying and bloody and uh, just contrarian is what it is. And uh, there's well, always... There's no a, bad Santa. There's a, no, it's not bad Santa. There's always a few of these, you know, like uh, Silent Night, Bloody Night, and, you know, uh, yeah. Black, Black Christmas. And there's, there's a lot of those. The, the, horror, the Christmas horror film with murdering Santas has been around forever. Uh, this thing is a little bit more in the, uh, in the spirit of, you know, uh, uh, fairy tales gone wrong. But in any case, uh, Christmas Horror Story, it's, it, it's really, really bloody. I mean, it's really gory and really bloody. And I guess that's kind of the point. So, uh, you know, thanks, thank the Canadians because they're the ones that funded this thing. Uh, we've also got Pee-wee's Playhouse Christmas Special, uh, which is a lot of fun. And uh, especially because it has Charo in it and anything that has Charo and Little Richard, frankly, but tons of great guest stars. I mean, Jaja and, uh, you know, uh, Frankie Avalon and Joan Rivers. I mean, on and on and on and on. So uh, that was a lot of fun. And I'm glad that's out on Blu-ray again. Uh, the uh, Jim Carrey, How the, uh, uh, Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas, that's the complete title, Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas, uh, is out once again in yet another edition. This is the Grinchmas edition. They do this uh, anew every year. This one, unlike some previous ones, has ultraviolet on it, so that may be a reason to upgrade all the usual uh, bonus features that have been on it before. I am not a huge fan of this movie, but I know a lot of people are, so, you know, for the kids, whatever. Uh... And then, this is a cute thing, uh, Elf, Buddy's Musical Christmas. This is um, a, a kind of a cool little animated NBC follow-up to the live-action Will Ferrell, Ed Asner film. Will Ferrell didn't have anything to do with this, uh, but uh, Jim Parsons uh, steps in and does a good job. Ed Asner comes back. Mark Hamill, soon to be a big deal again uh, after many decades in the... Uh, in the wilderness, and uh, Jay Leno and Gilbert Gottfried also throw their uh, their voices to this as well. So uh, this is uh, this is a cute little uh, addition to the Elf cinematic universe. And um, let's get in some live action stuff real quickly. Just kind of burn through this. Mark, what you, you, did you have some things over there? Right? I do. What do you got? Anything uh, good? No. Well, no. <laughs> I mean, I have this thing, Merry Xmas. This uh, stars. Uh, <laughs> excuse me. Kirstie Swanson and Dean Cain, and it's about a husband uh, trying to win back uh, his wife. And this is uh, basically uh, Dean Cain. I mean, folks, it's Dean Cain and Kirstie Swanson. What, what, I mean, what, what more can I say? There you go. Exactly. We also have a Christmas mix. This is with Haley Duff and uh, somebody named Tilkey Jones. I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure what a Tilkey is, but uh, uh, Tilkey definitely stars in the, this film. You know, it's uh, this thing tries to be very quaint and cute and Christmassy, and uh, you know, it's uh, I didn't really I I watched like ten minutes of it. So I mean, come on, people, this is like hazard pay for me. <laughs> Jim Broadbent is in a movie called uh, Get Santa. Now, I'm a big fan of Jim Broadbent, as is everybody, because the guy's won an Oscar. So I don't know why he uh, is in this thing called Get uh, Santa. So what happens is that uh, Santa crashes his sleigh, and uh, you know they got these kids got to team up and save uh, Christmas. So. You do get Jim Broadbent as Santa, and that's always a good thing. That's probably the only one of these films I can recommend, only because Jim Broadbent is the man. I love Jim Broadbent. He is the best. And then uh, we got a thing called Xmas Without China. Now, the this is from uh, Bullfrog Films. 
and uh, the I, I, it's essentially a uh, I'm not sh- I'm not sure to whether we can fully recommend this. Just kind of give you the the, the the just let you know that it's out there. They describe this as an intimate portrait of families wrestling with our drive to consume cheap products, which doesn't sound very Christmassy. Um, but it's essentially about a, a a family who decides to sort of give up buying like commercial Chinese products for Christmas. Um, it's got a it's 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 meant to have a, an environmental message. Uh, it, it doesn't feel very Christmassy. Um, it aired on PBS. It's an advocacy sort of yeah, thing. It kind of is, you know, for a certain. I mean, for a certain kind of Christmas audience, I guess that's a deal. Uh, and then uh, Paper Angels is just another one of those Christmas romances. You know, they, they're all kind of the same. They're all sort of very very thin variations on. Uh, on all, you know, uh, Christmas uh, Carol and every, you know, uh, uh, it's a wonderful life. And you, know, you take bits and pieces of all that stuff and you throw it together in a little Christmas romance and you wind up with these all heartwarming things. Uh, fair enough. Anyway, uh, so that's Paper Angels, uh, starring Matthew Settle and Josie Bissett, neither of whom I've ever heard of before. Uh, another couple that were made for uh, Hallmark, for a Hallmark channel, one is uh, Christmas at Cartwright's. And the other one is uh, The Best Christmas Party Ever. These are all part of the countdown to Christmas that they do on the Hallmark Channel. Again, it's more just, you know, really very white bread Christmas romance celebration stuff. It's what Hallmark is all about. This is, this is what they are on the Hallmark Channel. So there's a couple of those. On, uh, on Ventura Boulevard in Studio City, Yes, that's where the Hallmark Channel offices are. Yes. And right outside the Hallmark Channel offices, there's a billboard. Mm-hmm. And you drive by that billboard, and it's always a Hallmark movie billboard. Oh, I'm sure. And each one is funnier than the last. Because Hallmark movies are, you know, ridiculous. I know. A Twinkly Christmas. There you go. Starring Dean Cain. And then we have... And Fran Drescher. And then we have, Mark, we have Santa's Little Helper. Is that sad or what? I don't know what to think of this. Uh, This stars Mike the Miz Mizzenon. Paige, it's just all her name is, P-A-I-G-E, and Annalyn McCord. Am I supposed to know who either of these, any of these people are? I've heard of Annalyn McCord, although I think she was an actress on like maybe Beverly Hills 902 okay. or something. This is, this is just more uh, adults playing elf stuff. Uh, it, I, I guess this guy is some kind of wrestler, some, you know, uh, WWE guy. So I guess the idea of him being uh, like an elf is some kind of big deal. So whatever. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, that's that's there. And then, look, Christmas and dogs. They go together like Santa and a sleigh, right? Like Reindeer and Rudolph. Like uh, the little drummer boy and his drum. Uh, we've got Shelby, a magical holiday tale, T-A-I-L. Doggy! Uh, with Chevy Chase and Tom Arnold and Rob Schneider. Who doesn't want to see a Christmas movie with those people? You know what? If this was 1982, I'd want to see a Christmas movie with those people. Look, he's your little dog named Shelby. Doggy! He's little, little, so little, dumb. Oh, he's so cute. By the uh, way, is there, okay, is there, is there any more miserable, hated person in Hollywood than Chevy Chase? Is he really? Is he hated? Are you kidding me? Chevy Chase. He used to be like a miserable. I, I love Chevy Chase. I thought yeah. that guy was hilarious back in yeah. the day. But he has become just a horrible, horrible person. Actually, he was a horrible person back then. But now people sort of know it. Oh, well, okay. I, 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 he's wonderful in the film. It's a cute film. I'm, Shelby, I'm sure he is. Dog. I'm just saying he's Christmas a horrible movie person. about a dog. And uh, then, as if that's not enough, we've also got Aw, Christmas Tale, T-A-I-L, again, where there's two movies using the Christmas Tale motif. You know the story about, about how Home Alone was made, right? Uh, so, Chris, so Chris Columbus yes. 
was going. <laughs> so Chris Columbus was going yeah. to direct uh, uh, Vacation. Yes. Found National Lampoon's Vacation. Right. So Columbus goes and he meets with Chevy Chase. Right. And he reports back to John Hughes. Right. Who wrote the film. Sure. And said, I cannot work with this horrible person. Really? Yes. And so it turns out that Chris Columbus did not direct Vacation. Right? Right. But Hughes remembered Chris Columbus. And when it came time to find a director for Home Alone, he remembered Columbus and then he wound up on that. No kidding. But that was the reason why Chris Columbus directed Home Alone because he would not, he could not work with Chevy Chase. Wow, isn't that interesting? I had no idea. <laughs> I, I seriously had no idea. True story. Well, anyway, uh, Norman Rockwell presents Christmas Tale uh, again. It's it's just more fun, fun family, sweet Christmas, uh, ultra uh, not subtle messaging. Only this time, there's a dog in the middle of it. So that's uh, you know that's that's another one of these sweet generic Christmas things. And then for the kids. Wrapping it all out uh, is a Scholastic Storybook Treasures 20 Holiday Adventures compilation, which is fantastic. It's like, I mean, it's got a ton of great stuff on it. Uh, the Snowy Day and uh, Little Drummer Boy and Max's Christmas. And it's really good. It's really good. I mean, it's just, it's just a ton of educational Christmas stuff. It is absolutely wonderful. That one is uh, essential for the kids. Um, from PBS Kids, which is uh, always big in our house, is Peg and Cat, Totally Awesome Christmas. We really love that. Solving really big math problems, Peg and Cat. The voice for Cat is hysterical. And uh, uh, Odd Squad, Reindeer Games. Not such a big fan of Odd Squad, but, uh, you know, some people are. Uh, the, uh, then Word World, Building Readers, uh, has, the, uh, has a Merry Christmas uh, thing out, which is great for little kids. Let them learn to read and kind of, you know, coax them into it through Christmas. Caillou's Christmas. Um, much as I was hoping Caillou would get hair for Christmas, not happening. Still bald. But he learns a lot of other things, nonetheless. It's like he has cancer. Yeah, uh, people keep pointing that out. Uh, and then we Wait, mentioned... Seriously, am I not the only person to say that? You no, know, no, that's, that's, a, that's a, it's a running joke. It's a running <laughs> I didn't joke. I not even know that. It no, looks like he has if cancer. You, if, you, if, you go, if you go online and you look at forums, you find all kinds of really insulting things about, oh, that stupid little cancer kid. <laughs> it's really rude. It's, in, it's insane how people hate that. Um, and then uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Cowabunga Christmas, I, which is, you know, we talked about this some weeks ago, too. That's whatever. I mean, it's, you know, they're not really mutant turtles. You realize that. They're teenage mutant tortoises they're not turtles it's been we've been wrong all these years crazy uh so half of these dvds we're talking about twice because we talked about them earlier oh there's a few there's a few and then uh, out of the vault christmas uh from nickelodeon just has uh, you know uh, a compilation of shows from hey arnold and rocco and cat plus dog and uh, angry beavers and real monsters all the all the creepy animations. angry beavers yeah. that's the story of my dating life all the creepy stuff from uh, from nickelodeon that uh, they they wouldn't dare pair up with some of the other stuff um and uh then the last two the nutcracker suite another little word play s-w-e-e-t nutcracker suite that's story of my dating life yeah this is uh, thank you for that this is animated ed asner again alicia silverstone and drake bell do the voices it's uh you know it's not rankin bass but it's it's okay it it it's satisfactory and then uh, the last one is a uh, live-action film, uh, Marry Me for Christmas, which is an all-black cast. Melinda Williams, Brad James, Jason Weaver, Carl Payne, uh, Gregolyn Williams, and Victoria Rowell. But it is essentially the same as all the other ones that we talked about that had all-white casts. It is just more of that kind of saccharine, Christmassy, learn-a-lesson-for-the-holidays stuff. 
All right, and um, a few stocking stuffers, Mark. Stocking stuffers. I was going to make mention of a few stocking stuffers. We got some good little uh, digital goodies that get uh, thrown our way every once in a while. Um, the uh, the newer tech power to you is one I always recommend to people. That is a plug uh, a, a plug for the wall that has uh, USB chargers in it. If you want to charge your USB units, you know you can do that. And uh, newer tech always has really really fun stuff. And and then this is a thing. You know, last year we talked about a a charging and networking hub. I recommend that people do this if they want to be able to have some versatility with plugging USB units into their home theater as well, not just into the computer. If you want to be able to say, like, you know, if you want to use your iPhone or your iPad and you want to stream it to your, your, your system and you want to charge it at the same time, or if you have some video on a, a little USB uh, jump drive or several jump drives and you want to interface all of that with your home theater and you want to charge things all at the same time, and let's say you don't have enough USB ports. Uh, the, the new one on the block, the really big mama, is the pluggable, P-L-U-G-A-B-L-E, USB 3.0 7-port hub. Uh, this thing gives you full charge on all seven ports and full networking on all seven ports. It'll work with your computer. It'll work with your home theater. Uh, it's amazing. It really is a, an amazing unit. Uh, it's uh, highly recommendable. This is highly recommended. This is state-of-the-art for, uh, for that. It's the only one out there that gives you all of these options and all of this uh, versatility. Seven ports, uh, full charge on all seven ports, and full networking on all seven ports. And uh, the other new thing is that we're going to USB-C. And anybody who hasn't kept up with this, USB-C is a new USB interface. It's faster. It's going to be the thing that replaces everything. Ethernet, uh, the f- you know, uh, uh, what's, what's all the other networking protocol? F- not Fire, well, FireWire. FireWire. Lightning, uh, the Lightning connector. It's a similar thing to the Lightning connector. And what's the other thing, the Apple thing that, uh, not FireWire, but the... Yeah, it's uh, called... Uh, 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 anyway, the, this the is eventually... thing. This is going to replace all that stuff. Until that's replaced by something so else. So Pluggable also makes a multi-card reader, a USB Type-C multi-card reader, if you want to be able to plug this into your uh, USB-C uh, port on your laptop or whatever. And uh, then they also have a USB Type-C Ethernet adapter. So... Um, all this great stuff from Pluggable. They're really uh, they're they're a great company, and uh, you know this stuff will all be linked on the website as well. Everything we're talking about, there will be hyperlinks on the website if you want to go buy this stuff. So uh, great stocking stuffers there from uh, from Pluggable mainly P L U G L P L U G A B L E, and then uh, also from uh, Newer Tech that makes a lot of really great stuff. All right, Mark, we're uh, we're in the uh, home stretch here. So um, you know what. I yes. will let you discuss the only two <laughs> Hanukkah box set titles that we have. Oh well, it's Shalom Sesame. Why well, I didn't look at the you just handed. I never. I have not seen these. You they, just they handed ju- these to they, me. Yes, I know. <laughs> because because I have no idea if they're good or not. You just you, handed them to well, me right now. Tell people what they. What okay, they are. Shalom Sesame, I, the complete I feel, series. I don't feel ethnically suited to actually discuss these. Oh yes, you, you see do. what I mean. You're cheap. <laughs> the complete series, 12 programs on six DVDs, or so it says on the box, of Shalom Sesame. Um, I have seen uh, Shalom Sesame, uh, I, 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 so I guess I have seen the series, but I have not seen it in this box set form. I have to say, it's pretty adorable. There, there's something about, like, the Grover, you know, lighting a menorah that is just weird. Um, anyway, so this is uh, the complete series of Shalom Sesame. This, of course, is the uh, uh, the Jewishy version of Sesame Street. 
and you got to love that. That's good for that's good for a laugh. Um, Hanukkah and Passover. Now I have to say something, uh, Wade. Now I've been celebrating uh, Passover for many many years, not a few decades at this point. And uh, in Passover, you sit down, and they give you a book called the Haggadah, and you read the story of Passover. And everybody reads a part of the story. Go around the table. Everyone reads a portion of this Haggadah. And I've been doing this uh, thing ritual for about 30 years. I still have no idea what Passover is because all I do is just wait for the reading to stop mm. and the eating to begin. There you That's go. all I care about. All right. But here we have from the Planet Matzo Ball series um, an educational program that te- teaches you about Hanukkah and Passover. So it is good. Uh, I do like this for kids, all I right. have to say, because it has lots of furry puppets, and they teach you about uh, Hanukkah and Passover. Um, for me, I, I just want the food. All right, and then here's some uh, some other big box sets for the season. Uh, Super Sente. Uh, this is you know the original Japanese series that the Power Rangers are basically based on. This is a Gosei Sente uh, Dairanger, the complete series. I I don't find this all that engaging, but uh, you know if you're if you're a purist and you love this stuff, you will just go nuts. Um, we've mentioned uh, the Beginner's Bible animated stuff before. They now have it all together in a special four-disc collector's edition for the Beginner's Bible. It, this is all that stuff. This is going to be great for you for, uh, for Christmas. Uh, Jesus and his miracles, Noah's Ark, Easter, the Nativity. This is just, if you want to really just, just completely animated religion the kids out over the holiday season, that's the way to do it. Uh, this is a cool BBC series. This is really funny. Mrs. Brown's Boys, the complete series... Uh, this, this thing is so unbelievably funny and it is, it's really kind of fallen between the cracks. Uh, just classic great British comedy. Seven Christmas specials are on here as well, uh, which includes, you know, Mammy's Ass and Mammy Christmas. It's just, this is really, really unbelievably funny. And, uh, I guess, uh, I don't even know how to describe this thing. It's like, uh, it's like a British version of Medea. (laughs) It's like a, like a British Tyler Perry Medea thing. Anyway. Um, also got uh, Game of Thrones, the complete first season and the complete um, second season in a in a really cool uh, limited edition steelbook. These things have like, these medallions in them. And it's just like, I mean, look at that. That's like if you love that's Game impressive. of Thrones, it's nice. It's really nice. I mean, that's like uh, you know, find that in your stocking and it'll make the day. Uh, down Especially Ab- if you have your shoes on. Absolutely. Downton Abbey seasons one through five. I I warn everyone. I, w- I would warn everyone: if you get this, you're gonna you're gonna be disappointed because there's gonna be a season one through six. Once season six comes out in January, but if you just can't wait and if you don't care, then by all means, go ahead and get uh, seasons one through five. The final season, of course, will be airing uh, in the United States in January, and I cannot wait. Um, one of the great box sets of the season is the long overdue My Favorite Martian, the complete series uh, from MPI. This is just so long overdue. I wish it were on Blu-ray, but I can't be too much of a complainer because this thing, I've, I've waited for this for years. Every single episode of My Favorite Martian. Mark, come I on. I used to like that show. I did. I did love show. it. I liked it. Uncle Martin and Mrs. Brown's Cookies and uh, come on. No memory of Mrs. Brown's Cookies. Or, uh, oh, come on. Lorelai? Lorelai Brown? It's the no. best. There was a Martian, and there was Bill Bixby. Oh, it's the greatest. That's all I know. Uh, and Avatar, The Last Airbender, the complete series, not to be confused with the horrible, horrible M. Night Shyamalan film. Uh, this is that Nickelodeon series that inspired it, and it is much, much, much better. That's from Paramount. And uh, I'll let you make mention of those before I wrap this segment out. Uh, Wade, we have a, a re-release of the James Bond collection. As you know, uh, a couple years ago, they or before Skyfall came out, 
there was a big box set uh, with a lot of majesty and pomp around it. This is pretty much the same thing, but in more of a case that you can just put on your shelf. So if you did not get um, if you did not get the old one, you may want to get this one. It does include Skyfall, twenty three films, bunch of special features. So uh, there is that. We also have um, on Blu-ray the uh, complete series of a terrible show called That 70s Show. This was the sitcom that uh, wound up uh, uh, marrying uh, Aston Kutcher and Mila Kunis. That's what the show did. That's kind of what it did, isn't that's, it? That's what it'll be known for. That's what, that's what it'll be known for. Because it's not going to be known for the comedy. Yeah. But uh, the good thing is that the uh, is that the, 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 there's a black velvet case uh, packaging. <laughs> on the, look at the feel of that. See, I it's know. nice and furry and black velvety. <laughs> anyway, I, I, I never liked that show. Stupid show. Another show I never quite got into was the following. This thing got canceled uh, a few months ago, and this is with Kevin Bacon. And the complete series is now available on uh, Blu-ray. This thing uh, was going to be another Fox hit that was going to go for years and years and years. And in the end, uh, it stumbled through a first season, got into a second season, and then pretty much people stopped caring. So there's that. Also, uh, you know who you are if you love Hee Haw. A three-DVD set of the best of Hee Haw. Now, I have to say that uh, Hee Haw, I, I, I did like the, This is not my humor. These are not my people. But I, I did like this show. I mean, come on. This it's, is like vintage stuff with Merle Haggard, Hank it's, Williams it's Jr. It's redneck laughing. Re- redneck laughing. Tammy Wynette, uh, Tammy Wynette, Conway Twitty. Lots of great music. Lots of cheesy comedy. Lots of just cheap sets. And yeah. I gotta say, this definitely had this definitely had like a thing. Hee Haw lasted for a long, long time. Oh, way too long. Uh, the big one, at least for me, is Midnight Special. Midnight Special is available. Uh, this was a great old uh, TV show that just did nothing but spotlight just the best. Um, the best musical acts of the era. So here you've got Hart, uh, ELO, Aerosmith, Alice Cooper, Steely Dan, great stand-up comedy from Billy Crystal back in the day when he was first starting out, Richard Pryor, Steve Martin, George Carlin, of course. So Midnight Special was a great show and uh, lasted for a bunch of years, and uh, every episode was another great comic and another couple of great uh, musical acts, Bee Gees, Doobie Brothers, it's just really good. So I would definitely recommend Midnight Special. If nothing else, for the historical value of seeing some of these uh, comics and rock bands that are still around today back in the day. And uh, before I take us into another segment, uh, we are also going to recommend the Mr. Warmth Don Rickles Ultimate TV Collection, which we reviewed some uh, sometime back as well. This includes the Don Rickles TV specials, Volumes 1 and 2, as well as uh, Seasons 1 and 2 of CPO Sharky. Uh, if you're a Don Rickles fan, uh, this will make a Don Rickles fan elated to find this uh, on Christmas Day. Uh, you know, partly because you're, you're basically giving the gift of a Jew, Right. Don Rickles? He, he's Jewish. Yeah, so you, you, you're giving a Jew for Christmas. I mean, that's great, right? There's like a, like, a, like a thing. Give a Jew a home. Yeah, there you go. And then uh, this one is just a joy. Uh, this is one of the top releases of the season as well. Flicker Alley uh, has released Chaplin's SNA Comedies 1915 in an amazing combination Blu-ray and DVD collection. 15 fully restored uh, short films from his SNA period. Uh, these are so long overdue. Uh, I, I mean, the SNA films have been on DVD for a while, but a lot of them discontinued, hard to find. And this is just, this is like seven and a half hours of bliss, of absolute sheer bliss to watch some of the best short films, the best silent shorts ever, ever created. This is Charlie Chaplin building his persona, building his, his, uh, his genius in, in just a sheer, absolute delight. Um, this is this is one of the most important things you will ever have on your on your shelf. So, uh, one of the great great box sets for the season, Chaplin's SNA Comedies, nineteen fifteen, uh, an absolute joy. Lots of great extras in here, um, including uh, Triple Trouble, which uh, was edited by SNA without Chaplin's approval. 
from unused footage that uh, the chaplain uh, had shot for other productions. And uh, there's also the uh, some special edits of A Night Out and Charlie Chaplin's Burlesque on Carmen, which uh, were basically unfinished, and they are somewhat restored here. And a great booklet, and uh, you know, a premiere of Charlie Butts in. Um, it's just, it, it, it's just, it's incredible. It is film history in a box. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And with that, we're going to go into another uh, interview segment, which is um, something that's long overdue. I wanted to give people an insight into Twilight Time, which is one of our uh, favorite uh, labels. Twilight Time, you know, of course, does those limited releases every month of classic movies that they license to Blu-ray. And uh, I spoke with uh, Nick Redman of Twilight Time about what the company does, why it's special, how it came into existence, and uh, I think our listeners will find this very, very illuminating. I am speaking with Nick Redman, who is co-owner of Twilight Time, a company that uh, our listeners know that we are enormously fond of. Uh, it's like opening a, a, a Christmas gift every time we read whatever your new slate of announcement, uh, your new announced slate of titles is. Um, Nick, give us just a, a brief history of the company, how it came into existence, and um, what its core philosophy is. Well, it came into existence because Brian Jameson and I had been good friends and colleagues for 20 years. Um, he, as you probably know, was a long-term uh, senior executive at Warner Brothers for many, many years. Um, and he and I did some projects together during his tenure there, including the Wild Bunch and Album Montage, a documentary about the Wild Bunch that got an Oscar nomination. It's a so great Brian film, was, yeah. Uh, um, retiring from Warner's, you know, he was uh, sort of just leaving the company on a full-time basis, staying on as a consultant for a while. Um, and he said that he wasn't prepared to uh, just, you know, give up the ghost just yet. Was there something we could do? And this was sort of in 2009, um, and we were thinking, you know, there was the uh, financial crash and everything that had happened, and we had noticed that the studios were kind of backing off catalog with regard to uh, their Blu-ray and DVD releases. And so we approached first 20th Century Fox um, to ask them whether it would be possible to license some of the titles that they um, uh, were not so interested in putting out. I have a long history with 20th Century Fox. I've been a consultant to Fox Music for over 20 years. Brian, with his history at Warner Brothers, we felt that we were studio veterans, that we could speak their language, that they knew us, um, and might take a chance. And they did. So Fox was the first studio that we uh, began licensing titles from. And then quickly we took the same business model to uh, Sony, and they said yes. And then we went to MGMUA, and they said yes. And we've also been to Film 4 in the UK and some other companies outside of the United States. And we're building up quite a repertoire of both studio classics and sort of outre movies, both new and old, from around the world. Um, our model was a little bit different to the average uh, home video boutique label in the sense that we wanted to specialize in limited editions. This came out of the fact that for 20 years we had been pioneering at 20th Century Fox the model of the limited edition soundtrack, uh, which had been very successful for us, for the studio, and for the labels that had benefited from it. Uh, we felt that we would take that same model to home video, and it's worked out very well. Well, you you guys do an amazing job. I mean, it's uh, it, it's it's wonderful to always see the uh, 
the list of titles. And, and, you know, it is similar to, obviously, Criterion is the company everyone kind of points to as the, the gold standard for the, uh, for the collector. But uh, Twilight Time, I think, has a, an equally valid place because you release very select titles. And there's never any fat on those releases. I mean, I look at every single one of them, and, I, and suddenly my head starts spinning with film history, and it's wonderful. And, and I think specifically that, that you've got all the, these amazing Woody Allen titles. And, uh, you know, we just, on our most recent podcast, we talked about uh, Shadows and Fog and what a, what a great turning point that was for Woody and how experimental it was. The Woody Allen titles, I, you know, I, I, I am, tell us a little bit how you managed to pry those loose. That would seem to me that that would be kind of something that the, the, the studio would want to hold on to. How do, you, uh, how do you get some of these things? Well, um, it's a good question. A lot of it is based on the taste of Brian and I and also the people that we regularly work with, such as our wonderful essayist, Julie Kiergo, who writes an essay about every single film. Uh, we kind of pool our resources and say, what do you think suits us? What seems like a Twilight Time movie? I guess that we're either pretentious or arrogant enough <laughs> to think that we have a sort of an identifiable brand in a way. We think that there are movies that kind of sound like Twilight Time films and there are movies that we probably wouldn't ask for because they seem to be outside of the brief that we've set for ourselves. Uh, I mean, we are more flexible than that, but there is a kind of uh, a kind of methodology to the way that we choose things. So what we do is we'll come up with a wish list which we'll present to the studio and the studios either laugh us out the door and say, well, you're not having those, you know, or they'll say, hmm, you know, maybe maybe we will let you have some of those. Um, and so that's how it happens. We didn't think for a moment that we would get the Woody Allen titles from MGMUA. Uh, as you probably know, MGMUA Home Video is distributed by 20th Century Fox. Right. 20th Century Fox had put out uh, four of Woody's classics. They'd put out Sleeper and Annie Hall and Manhattan and Hannah and Her Sisters. And I can only assume uh, that they did not sell the kind of numbers that the studio looks for. And because we are niche marketers, you know, we primarily target the collectors, that small group of people. I mean, the number of 3,000, for example, which is what our mostly our limited editions are, was not just pulled out of the air. It was basically uh, culled from all the research data that we were seeing from the studios with regard to the average catalog sale. Now, a studio cannot really sell uh, selectively or even successfully titles that are down in that sort of range. They've got to be in a much broader uh, sort of sales range than that. Um, and so the Woody Allen titles that Fox had not chosen to put out were all still available. So we ended up getting a package of 13. We got 12 from MGMUA, and we got one from Sony, uh, which we've released called The Front, which Woody Allen yeah. didn't direct, but he stars in. Which is a great film. Uh, one of my favorites, actually, yeah. and uh, I love that film, and uh, we were very grateful to Sony for letting us have it, you know, um, Woody Allen's company or his people, as they say, they do have packaging approvals. Um, and so we, we forward, uh, to his office, um, the layouts and everything that, uh, for our booklets and for our wrap art and that sort of thing. Um, and they will come back with the occasional comment, but they really haven't interfered with us. And we can only assume that um, they don't seem to mind the fact that these films are not coming out on the big studio label, but they're coming out on a boutique label. But we've had no objections from them so far. So we assume, you know, no news is good news. 
tell me why do you think it is that the you know there there are there are a few of you who are out there with different business models kind of exploiting the uh, the the studio catalogs and uh, and you know you have what i think is is just a superb model the limited release and obviously there's criterion and shot factory and olive they all sort of have their own their own models but what it all speaks to is the fact that, and something that we've talked about extensively on the podcast which is that uh the studios just don't seem to care about their catalogs and I don't think it's because there isn't really interest, because we know from our listeners that there are tons of cinephiles out there the, the world over who, who love all of these old movies. But uh, for whatever reason, there seems to be a disconnect between the studios and that market. You do such a good job working with that market. You know that market. You know how to reach them. Could you tell us what do you think the disconnect is that the studios lack that you guys have tapped into? I think it's quite simple in the sense that the studio cannot think small. They're not trained that way. You know, if you think about what the home video business has been for the studios over the course of the last 25 years, it has been an unbelievable cash cow. Uh, it has rained money on the studios from the earliest days of sell-through VHS. Uh, Laserdisc was a lucrative uh, niche market for them, but they were still selling 20,000, 30,000 Laserdiscs of average catalog titles at a very high price. You know that some of those Laserdiscs cost $80, some of them were $100. That was a high-end lucrative business for them, albeit as close to a niche market as they come to. And then when DVD happened, despite the skeptics, uh, it blew through the roof. And so literally right up to and including 2008, um, the DVD market was just an absolute uh, no-brainer for them. And they didn't have to do much work if you think about it. All you do is you put stuff out and people find it and buy it. You know, that's an easy <laughs> business mm -hmm. to have. Uh, but it all seemed to creak to a halt around the 2007-2008 point when Blu-ray was not catching on in the way that they had hoped it would and that DVD sales were beginning to decline partly because of the financial crisis of the period, but also because, you know, we were beginning to see, you know, the, the happening start of younger people looking to stream and download things. And I think right. that they were caught in a situation where they weren't quite sure what to do. And when a studio, when a big corporation like that doesn't know what to do, they tend to go into a holding pattern. They, they sort of tread water until they see where the land is. Um, and that's really what's been happening over the course of the last five, six, seven years. And they have seen uh, in that period big retail outlets like Walmart start to really scale back on catalog items. Uh, they find that uh, they cannot position uh, the catalog titles in the way they used to. They can't get the end space. They can't get the retail floor that they need. They can't get the standees. They can't do anything anymore in the big retail stores. And so when that happens, they don't really have any alternative but to back off. And, of course, the new the new way out for them is to license the catalog. You know, there has been a lot of uh, boutique labels springing up over the last few years, and I'm sure there will be more, uh, and the studios will become increasingly happier to let third-party licensees take over the catalog business while the studio retains all of the contemporary blockbusters and the streaming and download rights on all of the films, which is where they think the future revenue will come from. 
Well, I think for collectors, if that means that uh, fewer studios handle their classics and, and companies like Twilight Time get to get to do so, I think they're they're thrilled with that. I mean, I look at the the Oscar pedigree of a lot of the films that you release. I mean, Sense and Sensibility, um, you know, uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, Breaking Away, uh, Yentl. I mean, there there are just amazing films in here. Bandit Queen. Uh, and it, it's really an extra. I mean, I'm just amazed at some of the stuff that you guys manage to to pry loose from their hands and and thrilled at the same time. Tell me what you sort of see to, to kind of wrap this up as things move more to streaming for the studios and then packaged media moves more for the collector, which I see as kind of a bifurcation that goes back to the old VHS days of rental and sell-through. Um, do you see that as a model that holds for the future? Is that really where things are going to go, or is there kind of another shoe that's going to drop that uh, we're not quite aware of right now? There's always a possibility of that other shoe. There's the specter of UHD coming, you know, and I don't know really what that's going to mean to people. I think it could be very successful, for again, for the brand-new blockbuster-type movie, but again, I don't know if it will really serve any useful purpose for catalog. That remains to be seen. I think what people don't seem to want at the moment is another format that they have to upgrade to. Yeah. I think people... I think one of the problems with Blu-ray is it came, I think, just a little bit too soon had they stalled a little while longer, but I think there was pressure to go with it when they did in the mid-2000s because by waiting, uh, the streaming and downloading would have caught hold and the sales may have been even worse. And there was also that that format war between Blu-ray and HDTVD. That didn't help anybody yeah. uh, either. And when the, when the smoke, you know, cleared on that one, you know, I think that nobody won in a way. Um, so I think, as you've just said, it's an acceptable compromise for the catalog to be now handled by third-party licensees, let the studio still have the easy money, the big money that comes from the big blockbusters, uh, and from the streaming and downloading. I mean, Fox, for example, right now are really ramping up the number of films that they are going to put up on iTunes, and that includes a lot of catalog films. So you're going to see a lot of their catalog classics appearing in that form uh, while we and others continue to... Uh, push them through the Blu-ray door, and as you know, with our limited model being 3,000, uh, we have not sold 3,000 on many of these titles. That list that you just ran through of those uh, big, big movies, I mean, they haven't sold 3,000 copies. Now, we get the argument thrown in our face that as well, if you weren't 29.95, and if you were in all the stores, you would sell 100,000 copies of these things. And of course, that's exactly the kind of math that does not work anymore. There is no way to sell 100,000 copies of any of these things if you were in in every store in the world, you would not. Uh, the audience just isn't that big. Um, and of course, the other downside to more boutique labels handling the catalog is that unless there's a way to expand the base, meaning the actual buyers of these things, you are simply going to dilute the pool by giving them a great deal more movies to choose from. But of course, every company is going to be competing for their dollar. And I think that you're going to see some possible hard times ahead uh, in that regard as the market becomes glutted with catalog titles, but there just aren't enough people to go around to make it all pay. Well, you guys do a wonderful job, and we are grateful that you're there, and uh, it, there, it's clear that the company is in really good hands. So on behalf of our listeners, uh, Nick, thank you for doing such a great job, and we will continue to look forward to all of the great things that uh, 
you guys continue to release. So good luck with it. Well, thank you. Thank you, Wade, for having us on the show. You bet. Take care. All right. And then just cleaning up before we uh, wrap this show out with our final and fantastic interview. Uh, you know, there's a, the, the WWE fans will probably enjoy that there's a nice big old coffee table box, uh, not in the box, but a coffee table book of The Undertaker. Uh, this is one of these big glossy uh, coffee table things for people who, I guess, probably have coffee stains on their coffee table. Uh, but anyway, hey, if I'm insulting some WWE fans, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I back off. But uh, Mark, what other, what other, we have three big box sets left. Three big box sets left, Wade. We have the Carol Burnett Show, The Lost Episodes. These are from the good people at Time Life. They, uh, they put together, uh, here's what they do. They take a bunch of DVDs. Now, I, I love the Johnny Carson one, which I have. They take a bunch of DVDs. They put a nice, uh, they put a nice little uh, box around it, and uh, it makes it look special. But really, it's just a bunch of uh, DVDs with the uh, Carol Burnett Lost Episodes. Now, I love the Carol Burnett Show. I grew up on the Carol Burnett Show. That was one of the two shows that made me want to work in television, the other being uh, Mary Tyler Moore. So um, I love this thing. I have to say that for your grandparents, maybe your parents, <laughs> maybe your, your parents. Yeah. Your parents, your I would parents. definitely get them. The Carol Burnett Show, The Lost Episodes, they will love it. And then we have the two biggest box sets of the season, arguably the biggest boxes without question. Uh, the Wonder Years Complete Series, which we have talked about before in that giant locker uh, they've now put it into a locker-type box, so it's a locker inside of a box that looks like a locker, and it's just huge. Mark, this is enormous. It's as, almost this as is big de- as an actual high school locker. This is designed to make it impossible for you to miss this on a store shelf. You will walk into Best Buy, and you can't help but see this because you will bump into it as you walk into Best Buy. It's crazy. It's huge. Uh, but all 115 episodes. And then this is the one, this is the one that defies uh, comprehension, Mark. The Yaka, the Nakatomi Plaza Die Hard Collection. This is the Die Hard films inside a replica of Nakatomi Plaza, which, of course, to us is Fox Plaza. That is true. Which we have friends who've worked there, and it ain't that exciting, and it's never been blown up or anything. Uh, so it's kind of weird because, like, I feel like they just sent me a pic, like a a, a diecast de- version of a you diecast own. version of an office building that I drive by every day, which is not very exciting. But I guess if you're a fan of the Die Hard films, this is this is crazy. Right? This is nuts. Why did you make fun of me before the show when I admitted how much I love Die Hard 2? <laughs> I love that movie. You know why? Because, because What's-His-Face crashes the, the plane like in, in the most impossible way. Planes have altimeters. You can't do some digital thing on a computer and fool the pilots okay. into thinking that the Earth is like 8,000 feet uh, further away than it really is. It's ridiculous. Okay. Given everything that happened in the five Die Hard films, that's the thing. <laughs> it's insane. That you point out. I was working for Air France at the time, and I remember our supervisors pulling their hair out, and just they could not believe that something so fundamental was so wrong in the film. Everybody's everybody from like, every time there's a movie about a barber, barbers watch it and go, "That's so wrong." About baseball, baseball lovers watch it, "That's so wrong." Uh-huh. It's the same thing. Well, anyway. This brings us to our final uh, thing of the evening, and uh, this, is, uh, this is a book, and this is a book that I recommend to all film fans. If you want uh, an education on one of the great filmmakers of all time in the form of a book, you are going to want to pick up Orson Welles' Power, Heart, and Soul. Uh, this is not just Orson Welles' life. This is Orson Welles' entire ethos, his philosophy. It is an analysis of his films. It's a study of, of everything to do. It gets inside his soul. And uh, it is a credit to the amazing scholarship of the author, who is a very dear friend of ours and also one of our LAFCA colleagues who will be in the room 
with us and with Alonzo um, in a couple of weeks as we vote for our favorite films of the year, and that is FX Feeney. Uh, FX is is a, a legend uh, for those who are, are unfamiliar with the, the the field of film criticism. FX is a legend. He's been around forever. Um, he is a delight. He is a wonderful, wonderful person. He hosts and uh, moderates uh, interviews and events all over LA all the time. I've been honored to do a few audio commentaries with him in the past for some Chabral films, and uh, I sat down with FX at a uh, at a local cafe and talked to him about this book and Orson Welles and film in general and just milked him for all of his wisdom and his expertise and it was a wonderful, wonderful time. So Mark and I will bid you farewell now uh, and we will leave you, uh, we'll end the show with uh, my interview with FX. Um, and before we do that, just want to remind you that we'd have all these giveaways. If you want the Indie Picks, uh, the Indie Picks Mix 10 collection of 10 films, send us an email with the subject line that says Giveaway Indie. If you want Gremlins, it's going to say Giveaway Gremlins. Same for Giveaway Goodfellas, Giveaway Sinatra, Giveaway Horror, Giveaway Grease, and Giveaway Interstellar. Uh, one lucky person will get each of those. Uh, so we're going to have, you know, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven winners. But you got to pick one. You can't apply for all of them. So uh, you have to enter for just the one uh, that you really want the most. And um, please continue to send us your, your openings and your, your box boxes and your listener mails to uh, gods at digigods.com. Uh, and before I clip into uh, FX's interview, Mark, any final words for the holiday season? Happy birthday there to we go. Jesus Christ. There we go. Happy that, birthday that's it. to you. So with that, we are, uh, we're going to go on uh, a little mini hiatus here because we have to burn through a lot of screeners for our LAFCA uh, voting. I know, Mark, you're pulling your hair out already, aren't you? Yes, I'm already staying up till one, two in the morning watching screeners. It's uh, two, three, four for me. Well, you guess because you never sleep. It's just I something just, for you to do while you exhausting. don't sleep. No, but uh, hopefully we'll find some good ones in there and be able to give some good awards to things. So we vote on the sixth. Uh, we're going to go on a little mini hiatus until that's done. And uh, Mark has a work marathon that will take him out of the month of December. But I will probably come back for a couple of shows mid-December just to clean up some titles uh, pre-Christmas with Tim. And uh, otherwise, Mark and I, as a team, will be back in January. So with that, we will leave you now with uh, my interview with F.X. Feeney regarding his amazing book, Orson Welles, Power, Heart, and Soul. I am sitting here with our very good friend and L.A. Film Critics colleague, F.X. Feeney. Uh, we are going to be talking about your, uh, your Orson Welles book, the complete title of which is... Orson Welles, Power, Heart, and Soul. Because I knew I'd get that wrong. Because it's, it's, it's the, the, the sub, the, it's the secondary part of it that is so cool to me. Because it's not a straight bio. You, you know, there've been enough Orson Welles bios. I yes, think we all thank agree. you. Yes. And uh, what I think is so cool about your book, and it's, it, is that it, it, it gives you enough biographical information to get a handle on the man, to get inside his head and his personality. But you, you give us context to his body of work and his life that none of the other books have ever given us. Thank you. I'm so, so glad. What? Let's talk about the because you have some personal connections to Wells as well. Yes. In your in your career, so just uh, just sort of re relay that for our listeners so they understand how you intersect with Wells and what the impetus was for the book. Absolutely. First of all, thank you. And I, if if there's a thesis about Wells that you can work for any new book, it's that he personally embodies so much about the movie business. He embodies so much of what movie making is to its essence. And to his core, that as he once himself said about Hollywood, there's nothing you can say about Hollywood, good or bad, that isn't true. You know, the subject is too enormous. Yeah. And Wells 
by the drama of his life. It, 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 the drama of his life spreads in so many directions that there's never any end to the commentary mm -hmm. if you just pick a thread. Now, my personal connection is almost inadvertent. Um, I used to be a, uh, I was a consultant at the Z Channel uh, back in the uh, 1980s. We ran a lot of movies on pay television. And uh, Jerry Harvey pioneered the idea of showing director's cuts and doing tributes to whole bodies of a director's work. This is well in advance of Turner Classics or any other pay-per-view that would do this. And so I got more familiar with Wells than ever when trying to make commercials for Z about his work. And I fell in love with um, the screenplay that he, Wells wrote, The Big Brass Ring. Uh, it was published two years after Wells' death. And, you know, when another project that I was working on fell through, I was looking at the Wells, and I thought, my God, why not, why not make this happen? You know, it's a, it's a terrific little story. It's sitting out there. You know, some people would say, how dare you? But the idea is, well, how dare you do a Shakespeare play? How dare you do a, a Chekhov play? So it seemed a reasonable uh, assumption. Uh, eventually, I mean, a, a long saga that I go into in the book, but eventually I got together with a director, George Hickenlooper, who had the same enthusiasm. The late George Hickenlooper. The late George Hickenlooper. Yes. Passed far beyond his, uh, when he should have gone. Yes, yes. Yeah, George's film career is quite wonderful because you can watch him really, it's a growth learning curve all the way from a, a little sort of supernatural movie he made during the, set during the Civil War mm -hmm. called uh, The Grey Knight, all the way up to Casino Jack with Kevin Spacey. Yeah, Factory, well, Factory Girl. Wouldn't Factory Girl. Which I think it's terrific. A terrific yeah. film. So he, there's a man who in the space of really a decade, roughly a decade, maybe a decade and a half, you know, really uh, led a giant career of his own. And so his, George's enthusiasm for Wells um, it was much like mine. It had been developed over a long period of time. And so in the course of researching that script and taking on Wells as a human being, well, let's put it this way, taking on Wells as an artist and trying to adapt him, it became um, more and more urgent to try and understand him as a man because we, we, were, we had a deal, but you know, the idea was you had to set it in the United States. It has to be contemporary. It's like, okay, already you're doing now a kind of Forbidden Planet version of of, uh, <laughs> right. of of Big Brass Ring, but that is very much in Wells's own manner. Wells was the kind of guy who, um, you know, when we were sitting down, you and I, Wade, you you drew my attention to a wonderful thing that Wells said, which is that absence of limitations is the enemy of art. Now Wells understood perfectly well that if the costumes don't show up when you're filming Othello and you got to do the big murder scene, okay, what do you do without costumes? Well set in a Turkish bath, dress everybody in towels, and, and they've got their wigs. So you, you've basically made a scene, and what, are, what do you know? You've made it unforgettable. So George and I responded to that challenge of, okay, we've gotta, we're going to take these characters. How can we be true to, to what Wells wanted and yet be as free as we need to be in order to make this film happen at all? In the course of that, you know, I'm researching Wells' life, reading all the bios, and I come across two things which seem to me very undercovered in relation to Wells. One is that he had a brother who was 10 years his senior who was his close lookalike, his brother Richard. They, you see photos of them. They, they resemble each other amazingly. Um, but Richard was afflicted with schizophrenia or perhaps it was something simpler like attention deficit disorder. But in any case, he was a, a wild and obstreperous child. Do I need to hold? No, no, no? no. Uh, Okay. Uh, sure. It may, have, it may have been schizophrenia. It may have been 
a, a spectrum of autism. But at any rate, he was a disappointment to his parents. And he was often institutionalized. At one point, he was even believed dead. And then he turns up years later. Among other things, Wells, while with his wife, Virginia Nicholson, on the New York street, and there are two versions of the story. The other is that he's on a street in San Francisco with Rita Hayworth, but he's asking a group of derelicts to move, and the crowd parts, and one of them is his brother. And he introduces them to his wife. That's the kind of relationship they had. And I thought, boy, that's something that Wells... Thematically, it's there in all his work. The Cain and Abel relationship is there in every Wells film, but never dealt with directly. So in dealing with Big Brass Ring, you know, it was a politician. He's got a mistress buried in the past. Well, rather than a mistress, because in the age of Bill Clinton, that seems less shocking. Why not tunnel your way to a missing brother who's like a kind of flying Dutchman, a ghost? And so in that respect... Solving that problem was one thing. The other aspect that was sort of undercovered in terms of Wells is the seriousness of his political involvements. That you can find, and it's alluded to in Frank Brady, and at, at that point, you know, Simon Callow's volume one was there, and it alluded to his politics, but even Callow, with all his dil- diligence, doesn't take Wells' politics seriously until volume two. You could find Joseph McBride doing essays about Wells' politics and James Naramore as well, but... And, and uh, to an extent, Jonathan Rosenbaum. But these, these good critics are sort of at the margins of the way Wells was perceived as a public figure. Wells generally is remembered as that guy, who, you know, from the wine commercials who also happened to direct, you know, the greatest Hollywood movie ever made. I mean, look, I, I come from a generation that grew up uh, knowing him as a fat guy with a beard who sold wine and occasionally narrated cheesy documentaries about uh, conspiracy theories. Right. Right. Exactly. That's the guy that I knew yeah. and, and that voice. And then you discover, well, you know, my father was an acting teacher who actually, I, I don't even know if you know this, but no. my, my father's acting school, uh, Rita Hayworth's father was his dancing instructor at my father's dancing school. So wow. my father knew Rita Hayworth from the time she was a little girl and was probably, you could argue, was her first acting teacher. So no I, my father then introduced me to her, which is how my father basically knew him. But then yeah. I later discovered, wow, he, he directed and he wrote and he produced and he yes. was the quadruple threat and, and flamed out long before he should have really hit his stride. Right. And so, you know, we, we kind of backwards construct our, uh, yes. at least my generation, we backwards constructed our understanding of Wells. And so we do for all history, but in yeah. Wells's case, he's such a chameleon that uh, depending on where you, you yeah. where he first catches your attention, that becomes your whole interpretation yeah. of him. So, so there one is reading about Wells um, and his close interactions with Franklin Roosevelt and. Uh, his own political ambitions, and I developed this notion, and it's borne out by the facts, you know, when you look closely, that for Wells, Hollywood was actually a detour. People say he came to Hollywood, he had it all, and he blew it. That's the, that's the general myth, but in fact, he was a New York operative, you know, actor, director for radio, very successful. He had his eye on Washington, D.C., and when a when a beautiful three-picture deal gets offered to him based on the Martian prank uh, of 1938, of course he takes it. But wouldn't you know, he's also devoting his film efforts to creating a, a political identity for himself, a public identity as a great man. That's, I think, the real impetus behind Citizen Kane. 
50. Now, that makes Citizen Kane suddenly much more autobiographical than anything. Yes. Here, Wells, here was Orson Welles with his great career in radio. His eye was on Washington, D.C., and he's, he basically takes the detour to Hollywood. He creates Citizen Kane, so to speak, as an advertisement for himself. Uh, it is In recent years, recent decades, really, the Hearst family has kind of appropriated Citizen Kane. It's alluded to in the, in the documentary you see if you visit Hearst Castle, you know, it is seen as a myth of William Randolph Hearst. Um, and other critics have taken this very seriously as such, but really Hearst was not the object of Wells's um, scorn, derision, or even his interest. I mean, he wanted to create a great American, a fictional great American, because, of course, Herman Mankiewicz, the wonderful screenwriter he engaged to do the first couple of drafts of the screenplay, because Mankiewicz knew Hearst, there's a certain authority that goes into the film about, you know, uh, the the castle that Hearst, uh, that uh, Kane lives in, the, the wife's jigsaw puzzles and her heavy drinking, all these aspects of Marion Davies and, and William Randolph Hearst's life together have an authentic bite to them because Mankiewicz is a first-hand witness to that. But Hausman, John Hausman, who was Wells' creative partner and was sort of in residence while Mankiewicz was developing the screenplay would keep calling his attention to Wells himself, saying, you know, make this about the dog-faced boy, because they, they began to be very derisive toward, toward Wells, and that's as well they should. And Wells actually encouraged it, and, they, and Wells would show up for meetings, and they would, you know, bicker about stuff, and Wells felt, well, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my number after Herman's through, and after Mank is through, as he called him. And uh, so basically it is a, fundamentally an autobiographical work. And it's an auto, I would call it auto-mythography because it's not really confessing Wells' direct past, but it is projecting uh, in mythic terms how he saw himself or how he would like to be seen as a man who could be president. That's the way, you know, when you see Kane for the first time, I mean, part of the pang I felt watching it at 18 was, oh my gosh, this, this guy's really cool. That speech he gives about labor against Boss Jim Geddes and all that, it's a working man. I mean, it's like a Franklin Roosevelt speech, and you feel, oh, this man could be a great president. And then, of course, he gets undone by that scandal over the love nest with the singer, and, and, and he's a fellow who overreaches. Uh, and so here you have the sort of slightly comic tragedy of a man who overreaches and whose life really has a kind of simplicity of a search for love built into it. And one can look at Wells's life and, of course, find that contour in it as well, and, and a number of biographers have. I feel, well, sorry, go on. I feel that, you know, certainly that is there, the overreaching, the search for love, all those things you can ascribe to Wells, you can ascribe that to each of us, and that, in a sense, is the universality of Citizen Kane. It is the universal core of, uh, of all his films, but there is, at the same time, a real substance to his aspirations that I think contemporary pop culture has largely forgotten, and that's what I'm trying to restore with my book. So, for so many people, when we look at Wells' career, especially when you study him in, in, in film school, as, as I did, you, you get a more academic insight to it, we almost study him as as a guy who is more famous for the films he didn't make than the films he did make. 
that's sort of, you know, you, when you make the list, you look at Kane, Amberson, Touch of Evil, maybe, you know, one or two others in there that, that are... Chimes sort of, at Midnight. Chimes at Midnight that, yeah. that, 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 are, that are, you know, well-regarded, but, but not masterpieces. Mm-hmm. And then you look at the list of films that, that either didn't get made or that were made against tremendous odds. Yeah. I mean, you know, Othello being um, yes. Macbeth. I mean, Othello being basically the, the the one that we sort of look at as how did that ever get made? You know. And, yes, um, and he made it himself on his own dime across four years of doing acting jobs to pay for it. Yeah. And Chimes at Midnight, which I would argue is his other masterpiece to set besides Citizen Kane. That's the arguably the greatest of all Shakespeare movies, and he did that. Um, he managed to. Uh, in a way that the producer forgave, he swindled a, a, a Spanish financier into do, uh, into a two-picture deal, one to make a film of Treasure Island and the other to do Falstaff. And, of course, Falstaff's the one that got made. And uh, Chimes at Midnight is, goes by the, both titles, Falstaff and Chimes at Midnight. But the, the, the tremendous raw energy and the tremendous finesse with which that picture is cut, you know, the master's hand is at work. But one is conscious of films that he set out to make that, you know, are still in limbo. For example, um, The Other Side of the Wind, which may see light of day uh, in the next year or so. It's certainly there are many parties Amazing. gathered to come together and get it done. It's not out of anybody's reach either. You know, a friend of mine said, well, it won't be a Wells film because he's not around to cut it. Well, he did a fine cut of about 47 minutes of it, and that exists intact. And the rest of it can be finessed. You know, an excellent edition was put out of... F. Scott Fitzgerald's last manuscript, The Last Tycoon, edited by Edmund Wilson. And it is in the canon beside the rest of, of Fitzgerald's great work. And uh, even though it's unfinished and it's, you know, you have to imagine the, the last chapters, nevertheless, what's there is so substantial and alive that, that uh, you, you're grateful to have it. And I think that will be the case with Other Side of the Wind whenever it does emerge. Um, and you have other films that he set out to make that, he, you know, he... He, he wrote a beautiful adaptation of Isaac Dennison's uh, short novel, The Dreamers. In fact, he combined it with another short story of hers called Da Capo, which is about the same characters. And so that, that screenplay, which can be found online, is a beautifully detailed um, vision of, a, of what would have been Wells's um, magnum opus. It would have been a kind of um, tempest if, if he had managed to make that film... You know, when he was when he first wrote the screenplay in 1978-79, you know, uh, he could have made that film for uh, the way Ridley Scott made The Duelist. Ridley Scott made The Duelist around that time for £900,000, $900, rather. And, you know, what Wells was doing with period is no more strenuous than what Ridley Scott was up to in The Duelist. And it was the same kind of intimate epic. And, you know, you look and you just you feel a pang. You think, ah, oh, that, that could have been so great. And um, and he did do bits of it, you know, that he financed in his backyard, and those are so exquisite. You know, it would have been really terrific. He did not lose any of his chops as a, as a narrator, uh, and when I say narrator, I mean in terms of a visual narrator, his ability to find the beauty in whatever he was looking at. He would just, you know, compose so that everything was shown to advantage, and and then he could cut in such a way that these images would explode against one another. All of that. Uh, those particular gifts and skill sets never rusted in him because he was always making films right up to the day he died. But, you know, in Touch of Evil, you see what he could do with a studio's full support. 
you know, Universal basically gave him the keys to the Chevy and left him alone. And, and so you have a, a movie of tremendously vibrant energy, even though it got mutilated in its first release cut. Uh, you know, those mutilations were, were really just um, the leaving out of certain scenes. Uh, th- those scenes are easily restored and, and were. And so we have now uh, a substantial uh, approximation of, of the director's cut, you know. Uh, and so what we have is hard evidence of, of the excellence of his gift and how it never faded for him. But, you know, a director is entirely dependent on circumstances. You and I, when we were sitting down, Wade, talked a bit about Terence Malick or about um, Jaco van Dormael, the the, um, the great Belgian director, and how, uh, or, or Jean, uh, the Bienex, the, the wonderful, also Belgian director uh, from, you know, the, the 70s, early 80s. These guys come along, they have a moment, as we were saying, but, yeah. you know, and Terence Malick, and you go, okay, where'd they go? Terence Malick disappears for 20 years and then bursts out of hiding and yeah. is like suddenly... Second career. Second career. Yeah. And... and you know, and it's going to be a fun debate in times to come. Which is the greater career? I'm I'm in favor of the new films. I, I think there, he's an astonishing poet, and you know, I, I think it's. I befriended Michael Cimino over the years, and he said something that I think is really to the point of Wells, Malick, and all these guys, and I think to himself too. But he said, you know, Hollywood's a tough town to be a poet in. In fact, wow. he said it's no it's no industry to be a poet in. You, he 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 said it several ways because he was trying to you know it's it's just poetry is just not what what this industry is about. So when you pull it off, you you're you're pulling it off against enormous odds. Yeah. You know, and um, the formulation that you called out before of the uh, the idea of doing of entertaining first and soul searching second. That's very much the way things operate here. Which, which is the uh, the Milos Forman quote oh. I should, for, for the for the benefit of the listeners. Yes. Which is you know that that's he always said that's the difference. It was at the Berlin Film Festival some years ago. He said that's the difference between Hollywood and and, and uh, Europe. In Europe, it's about soul searching first, entertainment second. Hollywood is the inverse. And um, yeah, it's a it's that's the conundrum. Well, he, l- l- let's let me let me push the the conversation on Wells to to this sure. point. Sure. Um, Wells continues to be more than almost any other director of his era relevant to today, and I yes. think. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it strikes me for two for two reasons. Because most of the other directors of the day, they they did what Soderbergh has basically done in this day and age, which is one for them, one for me. And there was a trade off, and they were able to sort of, well, I'll make I'll make your big stupid you know blockbuster movie if you agree to make my Che Guevara two part. You know, self-indulgent uh, thing, right. and and um, Soderbergh even has sort of walked away now from the system, the direction it's gone. But Wells never really did that. He wasn't a game player. It, it, it strikes me he was an auteur in the era before auteurs. Yes, and he was an independent filmmaker in the era before independent filmmakers. He yes. kind of fought those battles before filmmakers today did. And for that reason, I think he continues to be more relevant. In, in, a, in a certain sense than yeah. would, say, a, a, a Weiler or a, or, a, or a Hawks or a, or a Zinnemann or any of the other guys from that day. That's is, that, a, is that accurate? Is that fair? I, I believe that is fair. I believe that, um, bear in mind, it's a very interesting um, detour that he took. He made a little film called The Stranger uh, mm-hmm. in 1946, sure. which you could argue is his effort to do the Soderbergh style, mm-hmm. to make one for them. And it was which, his most so, popular which, film. Which, ironically, if you watch Soderbergh's Kafka... That looks an awful lot like The Strange. There's a lot of overlap there, which yeah. I, I know he's oh. never really copped to, but still. The, the very interesting, yes, yeah. yes. And, and so 
I think that Wells found that um, unsatisfying. Uh, he also had the satisfaction right after of making Lady from Shanghai, which he was able to pull off a lot more idiosyncratic stuff. But uh, there and then with Macbeth, he was experimenting with ways of trying to work with the system. And here, I believe you have a political tragedy, too, because in 1947, he's getting work outside the country, and he's over in Italy making films. He's being treated like a king when he gets over there. Oh, Mr. Wells. Now, here, he's just sort of this kind of schlub who screwed up in Hollywood, but over there, he's seen as, as an artist. And, and he's being invited to make films all the time for, you know, British films here, the third man, you name it. And he's pulling down paychecks enough that he can actually uh, rent equipment and or borrow equipment from the filmmakers he's working with and make Othello. So I think what happened is that, uh, well, in addition to finding the independent means, bear in mind 1947 is a very significant date because that's when the HUAC, the House Amer sure. Un-American Activities Committee, starts to really knuckle down on people in Hollywood. By not returning to the United States until 1956, Wells was able to stand clear of the... The blacklist. He yeah. did not have to go before any committee. He did not have to sign any letters that say, I renounce my left-wing stands, any of that. He could just simply go be. And so, in a sense, what might have proved, if, if there had been no um, hysteria, if there had been no political panic that was coming down on Hollywood at that time, if that had been avoided, maybe Wells would have found his way to doing a picture like Touch of Evil or, or a, a inside for the studio and made it work better, you know? Because I think the other thing is that Universal probably did not realize what a commercial project they had on their hands in Touch of Evil. That is a highly entertaining movie, yeah. you know? But it was not entertainment in the mode that Universal was trying to go for. They were going for more family entertainment in Technicolor. Yeah, right. And here's this... Here's this wild beatnik movie. If they'd only known how to promote it, they could have really ridden yeah. a wave and, and had an enormous success. It's no coincidence or no accident that when they restored Touch of Evil in 1998, it became the biggest hit in the country, you know, on a theatrical basis per capita. The, the theaters were playing to packed houses for several weekends in a row. It was the number one film in the country on a, on a yeah. per theater basis. And, and that's because it's a very entertaining movie. And, and I think Wells always saw himself as a showman, but he was able to entertain and soul-search and, and be provocative. But I think, you know, you get belittled enough, you get treated with uh, enough contempt, and you just say, okay, I don't belong here, you know, or I, life is elsewhere for me. And so I think his relevance to today grows out of, I think, the, by default, out of his independence from any system. There's that. But I think, too, um, here in the age of the selfie, you know, you have an artist who is able to star in his own pictures and kind of generate a world around himself that is the Wellsian world. Yeah. I talk to a lot of young moviegoers. Uh, you know, young students of film will often mistake the third man for a Wells film. Which is the next topic that I was going to get to. So carry on. I'm glad you went there. Yeah, uh, because, you know, you've got... Sir Carol Reed directing that picture, but the angularity of the film, its black and white texture, its robust energy, all seem to be of a piece with, with Orson Welles and particularly the buoyancy with which he plays Harry Lyme. And, and that's, uh, that's, the, that's a, a topic I want to... Well, we might as well move into it Let's right now. Yeah, because because the, 
a lot of us have talked about how we are in a post-movie star era now, yeah. where it's now the franchise that matters, where it doesn't matter who plays Superman because Superman is the star. It doesn't matter who plays Batman, Batman is the star. It doesn't matter who, uh, who you know, the... Uh, the, the, the dinosaurs are the star if it's you know Jurassic films it doesn't right. so where where suddenly the studios have gotten what they've always wanted which is they don't have to be beholden to personality yeah. um, but Wells in many respects was I, he, he almost was such a huge personality that even when he shows up in movies as what fundamentally should be a supporting part right. he dominates the movie by force right. of that radio trained voice that, that yes. you know has no equal except perhaps James Earl Jones. Right. It's just resonant, and it's booming, and it commands your attention, and his persona is so commanding. Third Man is a perfect example. Yeah. It's not his film. Right. Um, even better example, Jane Eyre. Jane mm-hmm. Eyre is about Jane Eyre, and it's got Joan Fontaine playing Jane Eyre, one of the great stars of the period, and right. yet you are magnetized by Rochester because his Rochester is Zeus. Yeah. He plays Rochester like a Greek god. Yeah. And it's a great film, but it's not it's not uh, the Bronte book. Right. It's right. It's, it's a it's a different thing unto itself. Was he fully aware of the force of his personality, even in these cases where he just wound up sort of stealing everything away from the, the other movies? I believe he was, and I don't believe he was necessarily meaning to steal it, but he understood from an early age how to command attention. Yeah. I mean, after all, I say this in my book. You know, if you're, let's look at it this way: if you're if you're the look-alike younger brother of an older brother who's been cast out because he couldn't be interesting enough, yeah. you're damn sure going to be interesting. Because yeah. his mother would say, you know, if you, children who are not interesting, we send them to bed, you know? Wow. And so he, he just picked up early on, okay, I'm, I'm going to be as interesting as I can be. Now, there are ways to command attention that don't involve speaking. And this is where Wells commands us on the screen, you know? By, by holding still in the right way, you command. Mm-hmm. And so what we see going on right now is perhaps the death of the movie star, the matinee idol as we know them, but the rise of the character actor. You see, True. the way Philip Seymour Hoffman was mourned when he passed really struck me. And it, it, it's similar to Robin Williams, too, because I was struck by how many young people were uh, you know, really d- distraught and, and bowled over by Robin Williams' death. Because he's my immediate contemporary. I, I just sort of cherished him as a guy who, yeah. you know, a, a good man, led a great career. But, boy, people felt a terrible hole. And I think people felt a terrible hole with Philip Seymour Hoffman. And Hoffman is not a guy who, I ever, to my knowledge, ever quite opened a picture. But he's the guy you never forget from the picture. That's a really good point. And, you know, you can take, say, Helen Mirren is, is someone who uh, does this same kind of command. Every movie she's in, if she's, you know... Third, third gunwoman from the left in, in you know, yeah. in red, you know, above the age of sixty, mind you, she's, I mean, she's got that queenly command, yeah. and I mean, it's a certain eroticism. I would put, I say, it has yeah. to be an erotic persona, a, a ability to have really strong sexual persona, that, uh, and and you find it when a, when an actor has that, you know, you you notice them wherever they show up. That definitely describes Wells. Yes. It does. Yeah. Yeah. And it could be that in the age of the selfie, that that is also the other thing that speaks to us because what are people doing with their damned iPhones but projecting sexual persona, you know, clumsily or not? But, you know, it's about self-search. And so Wells' very public self-search also structures us in as an audience. 
So let's let's then move to to the, kind of the final area where I wanted to bring this, where, which is where I think your your book really excels, and that is the get back to the the, the point of relevance of Wells's relevance, because um, so many old movies. I, I you know whenever I visit, whenever I've taught, and whenever I visit other other film school classes, I'm always amazed at how little connection there is between today's film students and the films of the 30s and 40s and even 50s and even 60s. Right. But especially the 30s and 40s when all of this was forged, our film grammar and our right. technology and color and composition and it all kind of, yeah. it, it, it all sort of gelled in the 30s and 40s. You know, yeah. it was, we were experimenting in the teens and the 20s and then the 30s and 40s come around and honestly within about a 15 year period it's just that the diamond is polished. Yeah. And and Wells polished it more than anybody else. And I and I'm amazed at how little connection today's film students have to that. Um, but it seems to me that Wells has more to teach us still than we've really learned from him because we tend to put him and his personality in 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 the center of the frame. Yeah. But what is it that we're missing with Wells? What does he what really is the most relevant if we strip away all the sensationalism of his life and his his, you know, trying to get movies made and all the things that sort of grab your attention, the tabloidy stuff. What is it about him that is most relevant to today? I think it, he, it's something that he expressed to Peter Bogdanovich at one point in their many interviews. Peter asked him if he was going to do another period piece. And he said, Peter, these days I'm more interested in these days. And I thought, that's a very Wellsian remark in itself. It, it, He's always interested in these days. He's, he's somebody who has had in, enjoyed in his life a very present tense involvement with life as it is. I think his ability to overcome limitations, no matter what they were, or his ability to simply look at the present moment, whatever that was, look into it as deeply as he could and, and extract the nectar from it with, with just his attention. And I think that that's what we're all trying to do. And I think if he was impatient with the idea of period pieces, you know, Magnificent Ambersons, yeah, it sets the turn of the century, of the 20th century well, but, you know, really it's a very present tense film, you know. Um, I mean, Joseph Cotton even sums it up when he, you know, in that grand moment where he, he, he takes his love into his arms and he says, you know, uh, old times aren't... Dead. Uh, old, old times aren't new times. They're just dead. You know, I'm only interested in new times. And mm-hmm. Steps off in a turkey trot. You know, that only interested in new times is, I think, the the native anthem of, of Wells's creative gift. And so that speaks to all of us because so are we all. Uh, I think it was so interesting to me a few weeks ago to read, you know, that the young star of Star Wars, Daisy Ridley. Um, didn't quite know who Carrie Fisher was referring to when she talked about Cary Grant, saying, <laughs> saying, I really must pay more attention to the older film stars. You know, she was very polite about it, but there was that moment, and it's been much commented on by folks of the baby boom generation, how can you not know who Cary Grant is? I think, well, I sort of take the Buddhist idea of, well, why should she? I mean, she's about revealing what's here and now, and now great. But on the other hand, you think, wow, you know, Cary Grant is a magnificent world for anybody he, he presents that it's a wonderful place to get lost in but you know and so is true of every every classical filmmaker you could name I mean you know when we sat down we were talking about George Stevens and various you know and, and these are great artists who any young filmmaker should be exposed to should absolutely have in their diadem but maybe now maybe the 
right now because these times are so filled with transformation. Maybe what we just got to do as critics is just keep calling their attention to that stuff and hope they catch up with it at some point. But that right now, one must engage with the world as it is. And in that respect, Wells remains permanent because he did that in film after film. Brilliant. FX, thank you so much. Wade, thank and, you. And uh, again, I, I urge all of our listeners to go out and grab the book. Again, the complete title is Orson Welles, Power, Heart, and Soul, published by the Critical Press. You can either find it at thecriticalpress.com or go to Amazon. Perfect. Thanks, FX. Thank you, Wade. Thank you so much. Just hear those sleigh bells jingling, ring, ting, tingling, too. Come on, it's lovely weather for a sleigh ride together with you. Outside the snow is falling, friends are calling you. Come on, it's lovely weather for a sleigh ride together with you. Giddy up, giddy up, giddy up, let's go. Just look at the snow. We're riding in a wonderland of snow. Giddy up, giddy up, giddy up, it's grand. Just holding your hand. We're gliding along with the song of the wintry wonderland. Our cheeks are nice and rosy and comfy, cozy all week. We're snuggled up together like birds of a feather would be. Let's take that road before us and sing a chorus or two. Come on, it's lovely when the force lay right together with you. There's a birthday party at the home of Farmer Gray. It'll be a perfect ending of a perfect day. We'll be singing the songs we love to sing without a single stop. At the fireplace while we watch the chestnuts pop. There's a happy feeling nothing in the world can buy. When they pass around the coffee and the pumpkin pie It'll nearly be like a picture print by Courier and Ives These wonderful things are the things we remember all through our lives Just hear those sleigh bells jingling, ring, ting, tingling too Come on, it's lovely weather for a sleigh ride together with you Come on, it's lovely weather for a sleigh ride together with you. Oh yeah, lovely weather for a sleigh ride with you, with you, me and you. Snuggle up close and